2: The thing about biographies is that they often sound better, look better on paper than maybe in real life. But it is an absolute pleasure for me to be here today and I'd like to personally say thank you to each of you for making the effort, the time and the effort to come and spend this time with me and with everybody else. And a very big thank you to the UFO Research New South Wales people, Marie and the whole committee who have invited me today. It was, we were working it out earlier when we were having lunch, about 14 years ago that I last spoke at a UFO Research New South Wales meeting, which back then was held at the Catholic Castlereagh Club in Castlereagh Street in Sydney. And I was speaking on Westall back then. So it's great to be back. And I thought I would start today's session with a song or a hymn. I'm only joking.
3: <laughs>
2: well, I'm only half joking, actually, because since I started my Westall research, some songs have been written about Westall. In fact, an entire music group, a rock group I guess you would call it, called Westall 66, has been formed. And that reminds me that not only have there been, has there been some music, there's been some art made there, of course, have been the documentaries. There have been lots of newspaper and magazine articles. It reminds me that this story has caught on. And it's caught on with people. And I think it's caught on with people because this is a human story, the Westall story. I'm going to be talking about a couple of other things as well, but the Westall story is a story about human beings. It's a UFO story as well, of course. That's why we're here. But I think if we look at any UFO story, what we're really dealing with, perhaps 60%, 70%, maybe more, we're dealing with a human story, a story about people, their psychology, the sociology, the times, what was going on when the incident happened. And I think it's always very important to keep that human factor, those people who were involved, at the centre of the story as we, of course, look to solve the story, as we try to work out what on earth it was that people saw and what was behind it. You can see the title slide there. My presentation today is going to be in three parts. First of all, about the 1966 Westall incident and what perhaps you haven't heard about it. The story's been out there in the public view now for quite a long time, especially since the Westall 66, a suburban UFO mystery documentary, was aired on television in 2010. And there have been, as I mentioned, newspaper and magazine articles. There have been a couple of other documentaries. The Westall incident has even made its way into quite a few books, some of which are on the table in front of me today. By the way, none of these are for sale. I'm the only thing that's for sale today. (laughs) These are the only copies that I have, and for the most part, and you're welcome to come and peruse them, but I have a feeling some of you probably have some of these in your personal collection anyway, but please do feel free to have a look at them, and I'm going to refer to a couple of them during my presentation as well. But there are things about the Westall story that aren't well known, I don't think a group such as yourselves, where you are very into, I imagine, the UFO subject. You've done your own research. You've perhaps seen some of the documentaries. Perhaps you've even looked at the Westall Incident Facebook page. Perhaps you're members of it. Perhaps you've been trawling through it or trying to trawl through it. No, I know Bill Chalk has been trying to trawl through it over many years, trying to make sense of the Facebook group format that it's in. But So you may have a lot of knowledge about the Westall story. Some of the things we're going to share today may be known to you, and some of them may not. I hope you find it interesting. And a spin-off, if you like, from the Westall story is its, as I refer to it here, its doppelganger. A UFO incident which happened exactly a year to the day after the Westall incident in Miami. So, on the 6th of April 1967, which on its own is an absolutely amazing UFO story, but amazing to me in particular because of all of the parallels to the Westall story. And I have to thank UFO Research New South Wales for putting me into touch with the Crestview 1967 UFO incident. Because at that meeting at the Catholic Castle Ray Club 14 years ago, one of your lovely members came up to me before I started speaking and said, Shane, have you heard of the Crestview incident? And he showed me this book, this book called UFOs Over the Americas by the Lorenzens, Jim and Coral Lorenzen, in which was detailed, and it's the only place it's been detailed in book form, the Crestview story. So if it wasn't for UFO research New South Wales, I would never have known about the Crestview story. So the Westall part, about 45 minutes, I think, and then maybe another 30 minutes for the Crestview story. And then maybe we can have our break at around that time. And then when we come back from after the break, I'm going to talk to you about UFOs over the national capital, the lost history of Canberra's UFOs. Now of course I know UFO research, New South Wales uh, can, if you like, stops at the ACT border. Perhaps it doesn't, but I have a feeling that some of the UFO stories from over the years emanating out of Canberra aren't all that well known. Canberra's known for lots of things, isn't it? All of them very positive, of course but it's probably not that well known for its UFO stories. And I know, again, with a group such as yourselves, you will be au fait with some of the maybe better known stories out of Canberra, but there are others I think maybe you've not heard of, and some with an interesting connection with Westall. Today the presentation is going to be a mixture of slides, images, some web links, some video, A lot of the material I have is also written here in front of me, so I will be doing some reading, and I'll be doing my best to maintain eye contact with you as much as I can. One eye on you, one eye on the paper. I hope it doesn't get too tedious or boring for you, but what I have here written down I think you'll find interesting, but I'll do my best to make it both entertaining and informative for you. And, of course, with the video camera rolling, and it's, this is going to be on YouTube. I say hello to all the people watching this video on YouTube in 5, 10, 50 years' time. And it's nice to know that someone's going to be watching me and maybe you or hearing your questions when we were much younger <laughs> in the future. Let's go to the next slide. Art. I mentioned art being created about the Westall story. This is one such example. A lovely lady, by the name of Margaret Storey, who was not a witness to Westall, but has lived in the Westall area for many years, has become entranced with the Westall story. And she made this beautiful painting based on one of the scenes during the incident at Westall High School. The 6th of April 1966 was the date. 10.15 in the morning was the time when two classes of kids and one, most likely two teachers, were out on this sports ground, the Oval, at Westall High School, when something literally, to coin a phrase, out of the blue appeared in the sky above the heads of these people at Westall. And this captures the scene of that, I think, and if you look carefully, Amongst the kids, you can see what I thought was an older, larger kid for a while, but actually is the teacher, of course, the famous teacher who was the only teacher who went on the record at the time as having been a witness. And his name was Andrew Greenwood, one of the two science teachers at Westall High School. But to set the scene a little bit more vividly, a little bit more moodily, I'd like to just spend a couple of minutes with you now looking at a video that was created by some very talented university students in Melbourne, and they made a very short movie called Westall. Why don't we have a look at it? I was in the science
4: class with Mr Greenwood, and it was a girl that come into the class, all excited, saying, Mr. Greenwood, Mr. Greenwood, there's a flying saucer up in the sky, and we all laughed. Mr. Greenwood went crooked and said, no, stop that, there could be such a thing, and we all went out at that same time, we all seemed to go out and run out onto the oval and once I got out there there was a lot of school kids on the oval and they were all looking up and when I looked up it was up in the sky uh, heading towards the Grange.
3: had landed in the Grange and as I approached it there were two other girls that got there before me. Um, they were both on the ground, one was screaming and the other one appeared to be fainted. A fairly close friend, she emigrated though um, from I think Yugoslavia so I used to call in and visit her on my way to and from school sometimes or she'd walk to school with me. She's the one who collapsed on the ground and was taken away in an ambulance. Then she didn't come back to school and I went to the house to visit her and was told that she'd never been there and wasn't there. So it was a real mystery. She just disappeared. Some, a woman that opened the door of the house said, no, 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 Tanya, not here. So she just disappeared. She didn't come back to school and I never heard from her again. Um, So I just stared at the object on the ground about probably three or four meters away from me. And as I was watching it, quite disbelieving really. It started to just rise very slowly off the ground and then it gained a bit of height and turned on its side and just whizzed straight up in the air so fast it was almost unbelievable. And they just seemed to disappear into thin air.
5: And then of course there was people running everywhere trying to think what's going on what's going on so then for some reason I don't know why but myself and quite a few of the others had run to the fence near the road because I think there were cars or something that we and we weren't sure what was happening and because um there was the old Hume pipe factory across the road and then the jeeps arrived and these jeeps were covered like army jeeps and the men got out of the, the back of the jeeps and they were all in army gear and Large and stuff, and they were talking, and um, then they got back in the jeeps and they took off. Well, we don't know where they. They obviously came down here, I think, and then um, we had a, a uh, an assembly to tell us that we weren't to talk about it. That uh, because there were men that came in suits and had interviewed some of the children. There were men in also in blue uniforms. So i um, not sure whether they were police or perhaps they may have been Air Force, uh, and they also came and we had a, an emergency assembly called and not to talk. But it didn't happen. It was a weather balloon. We were all, you know, massively hysterical, etc., etc. That afternoon, a Channel Nine crew had arrived and we got told, you know, not to talk to anybody about it. Anyway, I did and so did a few of the other people and I was interviewed out the front of the school. And I remember very. Vividly, then the the policeman came, walked up to me, and he said, put his hand on my yep, left shoulder, and he said, now you stop talking and you go back into the school. And he turned his back on me, and he said to the the um, cameraman, now you stop filming and you go away. So I got detention after that. I was used to being told to keep quiet. You know, tips were seen and not heard,
4: and I didn't think much of it. I was used to being told to keep quiet, so I never, uh, you know, so I did. I sort thought of felt too, if I did, people would laugh at me or think that I was exaggerating or telling lies or something like that. I, I didn't want to sort of go down that path. And then I recall feeling very very faint and I thought I was going to pass out. Um, Whatever happened after that I don't know. I don't think I passed out or anything but I felt quite ill. But um, I felt as though the sky was all red and I was about to pass out. Like everything around me looked red.
2: Isn't it amazing how much you can pack into a very short film? And a lovely fellow by the name of Shane Gardam made that as part of his studies at Swinburne University of Technology in Melbourne. And it featured the voices, some of the stories of Susan and Terry and Joy. Some of the perhaps better known witnesses from the Westall incident. I've got a confession to make too, by the way. And the confession is this, and it's good for me to say it up front, I don't know what really happened at Westall. What I mean is, I've been studying this story now for the last 17 years. When I started, of course, way back in 2005, I was a brunette. And now I have flying saucer silver hair. My kids call it grey, of course, or no hair at all, but I like to refer to it as flying saucer silver. And over the years, having met so many people involved in the Westall story and heard so many interpretations of what happened at Westall and have spent so much time and effort, tears and sweat, looking into it, I still don't know what it was that people saw in terms of where it was from, what was inside, what's the ultimate solution behind the Westall story. So I guess in that sense, Westall's a bit like nearly all of the big famous UFO stories, whether it's Roswell or Rendlesham or Ariel or... They're all mysteries. They're all ongoing mysteries. Now, some of you, you may know. You may think you know. You may know what it is that's behind the UFO phenomena. I don't. So I'm not here to proselytise. I can't even pronounce it properly. I'm not here to convert you. I'm not here to make you think in a certain way. But I am here to share with you what it is that I've learnt about Westall and some of these other stories. And to remind you, not that you need reminding, that they are ongoing mystery stories that are fascinating. Whatever you think is behind the UFO phenomena or phenomenon, they're fascinating. Here we have some fascinating photographs taken from around 1963 or slightly later over and around Westall. This is a 1963 photograph of Westall State School. Remember the Westall incident actually involved two schools adjacent to each other, Westall High School and Westall State Primary School. And there were many witnesses, including teachers, that came from both schools. This is what the sports ground looked like. Three years later, in 1966, it was a bit better than this. I don't think the two cows were still there in 1966, but the buildings and the houses pretty much looked like that. And, of course, the huge high-voltage power lines with those enormous, tall power pylons were there and, of course, are still there today. The next photograph is a photo taken from one of those power pylons. How amazing is this? Someone climbed up one of those high-voltage power pylons, I don't recommend it, and took a photograph over the Market Garden area, immediately to the south of Westall State School, looking towards the area known as the Grange. The Grange being an old historical property which dated from the mid-1800s and which by this time, in the mid-1960s, was abandoned, the house was in ruins, the grounds were still there, and at the very western end of the Grange property, a grove of pine trees that had been planted in the mid-1800s as a way of containing the cattle, keeping cattle in, stopping other cattle from coming into the property. And it was those pine trees that would figure as the locus or the focus of the landing activities associated with the UFOs at Westall. The next photograph is another view, a closer view of the pines at the Grange over the Market Gardens. And then the next, at last, a UFO, a drawing of a UFO, a drawing that was seen by one of the witnesses. And I'd like to read to you now some of... What I'm going to read to you is actually a little bit of a capture of some of the articles which have appeared on the Westall Incident Facebook page over the years. So, in a way, they read like diary entries, me talking about what the witnesses have said to me, what they've shared with me. And this is the first one. And it's actually a photograph of the witness report that I created early on in my research, a witness report form that I would give out to witnesses who are happy to receive it, and they would fill it in with their details, name, age, where they lived, what they saw, if they saw something, if they were able to draw it. And I have a couple of examples of that. And this witness was a lady called Trish. And she said to me that it started with a commotion. And I wrote on Facebook, today I exchanged messages again with the witness who happens to be getting together with some other schoolmates and witnesses from her year level at Westall High School next week. Many things bind them together over the years and across the miles. And one of those things happens to be what happened in April 1966. I reread some of the notes Trish made for me when she first contacted me and I remain impressed by them. Here's some of what she wrote. Shane, I would like to give you my recollection of events on the day of the Westall UFO sighting. It began with a lot of commotion. In the corridor, with students running from classroom to classroom yelling, flying saucers, flying saucers. I hurried along with everyone else to the sports oval, and sure enough, there were UFOs. Silver, circular, domed shape. Not like anything I had ever seen before, hovering above us. If memory serves me correct, there was a dull humming sound. I recall one of the UFOs making a sudden movement. I screamed because I thought it was going to swoop, but it just tilted, sped off at great speed, and disappeared in the direction of several aircraft in the sky. The aircraft appeared to be following the other UFOs until they also disappeared. My friends and I were curious about the UFO landing in the Grange, so we ventured to the clearing to find circular patterns of flattened grass. Later that day, we were called to a general assembly to be told not to talk to the media about the sighting. Some students ignored the principal's warning and spoke to the media. Men arrived at the school in fatigues. Couldn't tell you what defence force they were from. Hundreds of us witness an awesome event. A UFO sighting. To this day no one can tell me or convince me otherwise. I know what I saw. I have had a UFO encounter. Susan, Mandy and myself were in the group that went to the Grange. Somewhat hazy as to who else was definitely with us Joy saw circular patterns of flattened grass. She may have been with us also. Joy ignored the principal's instructions and spoke to the media. Where exactly the circles of flattened grass were? That's hard to tell. The Grange was a large area. We used to do our cross-country runs there. I can't pinpoint exactly where, just that it was a clearing among the pine trees. I recall the circles of flattened grass but I also have a recollection of them being scorched. Tanya was one of the students running along the corridor yelling, flying saucers, flying saucers. Don't quote me, but I'm sure it was Tanya's class that was doing PE at the time of the sighting. There were at least two men in fatigues, a man in a suit, possibly our headmaster, Mr Sambleby, another man in uniform, don't know if it was Air Force or Army, they were talking to one another at the oval end of the school. One of the men in fatigues was carrying something, like a medium-sized toolbox. As for how many teachers saw the UFOs, there were hundreds of us on the oval. It wasn't just the students. That was Trish's account. And in my head, I have literally dozens, closer to hundreds of these sorts of accounts in my head that I carry around with me. And it's my job as the researcher, of course, to put the jigsaw pieces together somehow, because it is very much a jigsaw puzzle, because people remember things slightly differently, sometimes more than slightly differently, depending on where they were standing, how old they were, what time, what part of the event they came onto the scene. And of course, as the researcher, it's my job to somehow bring all of that information together, even if it's seemingly contradictory. And if it is contradictory... And if it is contradictory... Have I been talking for too long? No. And if it is contradictory, to know that, to respect that, to not hide that, to admit it. Because I think, if you think about any event that involves large numbers of people, There's always going to be contradictory elements. Think about when you have a story, you're remembering something with your spouse or with your children, something that happened earlier that day or the day before. The accounts, the recounting is always different depending on the person. So, let's hear another one. The next slide, from a student by the name of Phyllis. She now goes by the name Phil. And she was in Form 3, so 15 years old. And this is what she drew. And she wrote, one UFO appeared above me and another two further over at the other end of the oval. They all look the same, silver in color, dish shaped with a dome. T-
0: what if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At US Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders from ship to shore, air to ground cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.
2: Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. They hovered above for what seemed like a couple of minutes, then tilted and sped off at extraordinary speed and disappeared over the pines at the Grange. After school, myself, and other local kids ran to the Grange and witnessed three flat, flattened circular spots all singed around the edge in the paddocks. How do you tell 15-year-olds that they did not see anything or that what we saw were weather balloons? We know what we saw and will never forget the profound effect it had on us all. The next slide, is a wonderful slide because it's from the time. This is a photograph, and we have another one after this one in a moment, which was taken by members of the Victorian Flying Saucer Research Society, as it was called at the time. They visited Westall two days after the event on Good Friday. So this happened the second last day of term. The next uh, next day was the Thursday, the last day of term, term one, Good Friday was the beginning of the Easter long weekend and also the beginning of the two-week school break between term one and term two. So that break in between the two terms made a difference because by the time everyone came back to school um, two weeks later, in a sense, things had moved on. Some people had moved on. The story had moved back into the past, even though it was just a couple of weeks. But we have these wonderful photographs from the time. We don't have many. And this one is of one of the areas where the circles were found. It's very hard to make out the circles in this photograph. You can see one or two kids standing at what looks like a circular depression in the grass. The next photograph shows one of the students actually standing in one of those circular depressions in the grass. And this is Joy. We've heard Joy's name mentioned a couple of times already. And we're going to hear from Joy in a few minutes in a video as well. But in addition to the students as witnesses, there were adults who were witnesses. And one of the adults was the caretaker. At Westall High School, Mr and Mrs Sykes were the on-site caretakers, the cleaners, the maintenance people, and they lived in an old farmhouse on the school property. If we go to the next slide, I think we can even see that house. Here it is, the house is still there today in Rosebank Avenue. That's the main street of Westall, if you like, the street the high school faces. And the Sykes lived in this house and worked on the school property and I had looked for the children of the Sykes for many years. I'd looked for the parents, first of all, but then I found out that they had in fact passed away. And then I looked for the children, and I looked for them for years, and eventually I made contact. And I wrote, after 11 years of looking, I finally made contact with the children of George and Doris Sykes, the caretakers. Given that the Sykes family, parents and three children, Marilyn, Raylene and Kim, two girls and a boy, lived in a house on the property of the school, and that the two younger children were students at Westall State School, I was very keen to know what the parents, at least, may have seen. And as it turns out, Mr Sykes was a witness to the flying saucer and was adamant it was nothing ordinary. Noting that the Sykes house was and is still there on the school grounds and facing Rosebank Avenue, and that the flying saucer basically apparently flew from north to south over the school property. It basically flew directly over their house. Raylene, who was 10 years old at the time, recalled that her father was on the oval at the time, as were lots of kids, and saw something very unusual that was clearly not a plane. George went to the headmaster, Frank Sambleby's office, and told him what he had seen and then was given the task of helping to lock down the school. He described the object as metallic and round and that it had hovered for a few seconds and that it had landed or at least hovered very low over the back of the oval on the school property near Fairbank Avenue which runs behind the school in front of the primary school so on the other side of the oval from where their house was, before the object shot off very fast, up into the sky. Police came to the school, and Raylene had some memory of aviation authorities coming to the school and examining the ground there. The story got shut down very quickly, and George was instructed not to talk about it. George was apparently something of a raconteur and loved to tell a good story, but he instructed his family that this story was not to be talked about. And the other daughter, Marilyn, who was then 21 years old, remembers that attempts afterwards to get their parents to talk about it again were never successful. Raylene remembered that Doris or George had walked her and her brother Kim home from school that day. Kim, unfortunately, who was nine years old at the time, is now deceased. And that was something that the parents didn't normally do, because the walk home from the primary school to their house was a very quick and easy one, but they did that to protect them and to make sure that they didn't have any contact with the media. And they did not want the media finding out where they lived. Raylene also heard that an ambulance had been called to the school that day. When Marilyn, the older daughter, arrived home, she got off the train at Westall train station and she had to negotiate her way through the media at the front of the school. Headmaster Frank Sambleby had actually come to their house that night for dinner and had parked his car in their driveway, which was something he never did as he always parked in the driveway over the fence on the school side, nearer to his office. But on this occasion, he didn't want to be spotted by the media either. And after dinner, Marilyn recalled that George and Frank went outside to the Oval, and that they were there for a very long time. Raylene remembered Frank Sambleby as a good and lovely man, but that probably he had been lent on by whoever it was that came to his office in response to the incident. The daughters regret that they didn't try more in their parents' later years to get them to talk about what had transpired that day at Westall. There were more adults, though, who were witnesses. If we go to the next slide, Paul. Now, this isn't a very picturesque photograph i admit it's the canteen at Westall High School did you ever call your canteen the tuck shop yep. yeah it was the tuck shop for me growing up in Shepparton in Victoria canteen tuck shop and Westall High School had a canteen and of course it had a canteen lady it had several but the manager was a lady by the name of Betty And this is a photo of that canteen. And student witnesses have said to me, quite a few have said to me, that they were in the vicinity of the canteen when the event happened. And that they watched from the canteen as the flying saucer hovered and flew over the schools. Three students have told me that the canteen manager also saw what was in the sky that morning. And two of those students should know as that lady was their mum. The other student was a mate of the canteen manager's children. In the same grade, Form 4, the highest grade at that time, for this school in 1966, what we would now refer to as Year 10. And that she knew the canteen manager very well. She knew the children. And she remembers the canteen manager saying, at the time, I don't know what I saw, but I saw something. And what I have just recently learnt from this lady is that the canteen lady, Betty, spoke to a radio station at the time about what she saw at Westall that day. The canteen was only open three days a week in 1966, so thank goodness the 6th of April was a canteen day. Betty is now deceased and I guess there's not much chance of a recording of that radio interview surviving. But imagine if it could be found. That Form 4 student, by the way, standing on the sports ground behind the canteen, remembers that, in her words, the UFO hovered, no noise, then banked, went off to the left, south, towards the Grange, and that at the assembly the next day they were told to pull your heads in, And don't talk about it. The teachers and authorities were telling the kids it was nothing to forget about it. But the kids knew it was true. And she wrote to me, I will think until I die that it was a flying saucer. We have another photograph. It's an improvement on this one. This is after the canteen shutter doors got painted. So if you visit the Westall schools today, both the primary school and the high school, now called Westall Secondary College, have some wonderful artwork. And some of the artwork is a reference to what happened in 1966, including, as you can see here, the flying saucer in the sky somehow making its way over those high-voltage power lines at the back of the high school. Birds coming up, flying away. It's a tribute to the memories of the kids and others who were there in 1966. But not everything was witnessed that day from the grounds of the schools. There were witnesses elsewhere. Let's go to the next picture. Some of the trees at the Grange. And I've entitled this, The view from a tree at the Grange. Even the engines stopped. And this is a message that came through to me from a fellow called Russell. And he wrote to me because uh, he wrote, having seen an article on the Channel 9 website for the 52nd anniversary of the Westall incident, so two years ago now. And he sent me an email disclosing something that he had not discussed for many years. In 1966, Russell had been eight or nine years old and a student at Whiteside State School in Springvale, just up the road from Westall. It's the neighbouring suburb. And his house, though, was a little closer to the Grange than where his school was. And for some reason that he cannot recall now, he was at the Grange with friends, climbing trees, around the time of the Westall incident. Now, was he there on the 6th of April? I don't know. It was a school day. He should have been at school. Was his school having a pupil free day? I'm not sure. My kids had a pupil free day yesterday. (laughs) Did they have pupil free days back then? I don't know. So is he remembering something from around that time, but not the same day? Was he there perhaps in the afternoon after school had finished? Was he wagging school? I'm not sure. Sorry about that interference. Sorry about that. Anyway, what he wrote was this. He was at the Grange with friends, climbing trees around the time of the Westall incident. His older brother, five years his senior, was also there, but a little distance away with his own friends, riding trail bikes through the Grange. The Grange in these years, because it was no longer a working rural property, the house, the historical house known as Richmond Grange was in ruins, it was used formally and informally for racing trail bikes. Russell, from his vantage point in a tall tree, saw what he described as a flying disc, light brown.
6: If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up.
2: like dull silver, no sound. It came down, landed, and he wrote, it must have been about two minutes on the ground. Then it lifted up and flew away. He then remembers that his brother came over to him after the disc had taken off and said to him that he and three other friends saw three discs land and take off. His brother then added that they could not start their trail bikes while the discs were on the ground, that their motors had gone dead. Russell wrote that he'd only seen one disc on the ground, through the trees. He was about halfway up a huge tree, climbing with other kids. His brother, he explained, had not been scared, but kept repeating that their bikes wouldn't start. That night, he and his brother went home and they saw the news of the Westall flying saucer on the TV, which is why in his mind, of course, he he dates it to that time, he has that memory. His brother, unfortunately, has now passed away. Interestingly, this witness, Russell, now as a man, doesn't think it was a UFO that he saw, but rather a test vehicle of some kind. He's currently trying to remember the names of the other kids he was there with that day, but he wanted me to know that it really did happen that they were there. I, of course, can't explain the story or shed any light on what it was that these two brothers and their mates saw that day. Instead, I will just leave you with this beautiful photograph of the trees at the Grange, and maybe it was one of these trees that Russell from Springvale, Whiteside State State Schools in Springvale, was climbing that day with his friends. Just as an aside, would this be interfering with this microphone? No? It shouldn't be? Okay. Is it very painful listening to the microphone? Is it okay? Yeah.
4: Okay.
2: okay. We might change the batteries a bit later. Okay. Lovely. Thank you. Next slide, please, Paul. Another view at the Grange of these same pine trees. By the way, the trees that are left there now, and many of them of course have been thinned out over the years, but the ones that are remaining, they're mostly more than 100 years old. They're majestic old pine trees. And to be there on the spot at the Grange, even with the tree canopy having been thinned out, is always a wonderful experience, especially when the wind comes up and the trees start talking to you and the wind whispers through the trees. And of course the trees lean in a certain direction based on the... the, uh, based on the winds, the way that the winds normally uh, flow in Westall. It's a wonderful spot. But I have another witness memory to share with you. A student from Westall High School, but a memory not from the high school, but from amongst these trees. Because he wanted me to know that something came down the ramp that day at the Grange and the Army wanted to know. In January 2016, a woman posted to the Westall Incident Facebook page wondering how many people on the page had actually seen the flying saucer. She wanted to know, as her father, John, had been there that day as a witness. I contacted her and she informed me that her dad had been there that day while a student at Westall High No one in her family, including her mother, had known about the Westall incident until her mum came home one day with a book from the Opportunity Shop. Good old op shops, aren't they great? My mum worked in an op shop for many years, at St. Vinnie's in Shepparton. They always had great books. The book was called A Paranormal File by John Pinkney. Some of you would know this book. I'm sure some of you have it in your collection. And inside the book, there's a couple of sections about Westall. Her mother asked her father if he knew anything about this flying saucer story that she was reading in this John Pinckney book, knowing that he had been a student there. And at that point, after 50 years of literally saying nothing, John opened up a little about what he had seen that day. Now, fast forward 18 months, 2017, and James Fox, who I know you have hosted here, and he's a great friend of the Westlaw story, of course included it in his wonderful documentary, The Phenomenon. James was being interviewed on Melbourne Radio, a station called 3AW, by Dennis Walter, you remember Dennis Walter? He was a great singer, a famous singer back in the day, still sings, and now he has a career on radio. And hearing that interview between James Fox and Dennis Walter, John made the decision to call in and say that he had been there that day at Westall and had seen the flying saucer. At this point in 2017, I was sitting in my hotel room in the hotel that I was staying at where James Fox was staying at as well. I knew he was being interviewed on 3AW. I was sitting there listening to the interview with my pen poised over my notepad, wanting to write down anything that might have come up, any person who might have called in, but I wasn't expecting someone to call in with a story like this. And I didn't quite know what to make of it. And in a way, I still don't quite know what to make of it, but this is what John said. Not only had he seen the flying saucer at the Grange, he had seen someone coming out of it. Over the weeks and months since then, I've kept in touch with John. John lived in the same street as Westall High School, Rosebank Avenue, about a five minute walk from the school. Westall was his backyard and his front yard, and he was particularly familiar with the Grange, as it was where he did his cross-country running during school and where he played outside of school hours. On the day of the incident, John and some other Form 2, Year 8 students, had been sent off to do a run through the Grange. It was not a formal run, just something for some exercise, which was quite a common practice at the time, and no teacher accompanied them. While running back towards the school and still at the Grange, John was absolutely startled to see several round saucer-shaped objects, perhaps as many as five flying in the sky above the grange. He watched in amazement as one of the objects came down in the grange, about 20 feet from where he was standing, while two others hovered nearby in the sky above. He watched as the object with a dome on top and sort of like a cup on a saucer touched down in front of him with no notable noise, no noticeable noise at all. He took cover behind the scrub, saw a flash of light or a glow, and then observed a ramp coming down out of the craft. Makes you think of a certain UFO movie, doesn't it? One or two. Then he watched, in utter disbelief, as something, which he described as a person, although he could only see it from the waist down, came down the ramp, walked around a little, seemed to look at something on the craft, and then re-enter the object. He remembers the person as a man, although he couldn't clearly see the face or the torso, and because the the shrubbery that he was hiding behind actually blocked his view. But the person he saw was wearing a suit, like overalls, but not a suit or overalls that looked quite like regular clothing. After re-entering the craft, the craft perhaps tilted somewhat, and then after rejoining, the two other craft up in the sky flew away at great speed, like arrows, John described it, and vanished. John went over to where the craft had landed. He noticed that it was close to a sand pit. The Grange in those days, huge tract of land, had lots of depressions that would fill up with water. That part of Melbourne is known as the sand belt, so lots of very sandy soil, very loamy soil. You don't have to dig very far and the sand comes up. So lots of those sort of sand, pitty areas. And he noticed that where the craft had been was a perfectly round, burnt ring of grass. The ring wasn't smoking or burning, but it looked burnt to him. Petrified at this point, John raced back to the school unaware of any other students had been nearby or had witnessed what he had. On arriving back at the school, he was met by a teacher who wanted to know where he had been. And with the teacher was someone from the army who wanted to know if he had seen anything, to which John said, no. No way. Afterwards, an assembly was called, and army officials in uniform told everyone to keep quiet about what had happened that day. And that if anyone had seen anything, to come forward. John didn't come forward. In fact, he maintained that silence for 50 years. He never mentioned the sighting to his parents or his siblings. He remembered, though, how strange it was that the army had arrived so quickly after his sighting, within about 15 or 20 minutes. He saw soldiers in green uniforms walking around the school grounds. He heard that the army had fenced off the area at the Grange and that no one was being allowed in. John was so shaken by the experience at the time that he refused to ever go back to the Grange that year. And whenever he did cross-country runs, he used the nearby streets and kept away from the Grange. His family moved up here to Sydney at the end of 1966, and it would be decades later before he returned to the area that the Grange had once occupied. Knowing that the army did not want people talking about it and doubting that anyone would even believe his account of what he had seen, he decided to keep the experience to himself for five decades. He doubts that people even now will believe him, and he doesn't care anymore. As he says, he knows what he saw. At the time, He thought the person he saw coming from the craft was not an astronaut or a pilot, but rather someone from somewhere else, not from Earth. Even though he didn't see any others, John said that he had the feeling at the time that there were other people in the craft, maybe three or four others. He remarked to me that if he saw such a craft today, he wouldn't wouldn't hide behind the scrub as he did back then as a 14-year-old, but would go up to the person and say, G'day. Over the years, I've established some small Facebook conversation groups with people who were at Westall, groups based on their form or if they were at the primary school or maybe they were witness outside of the schools. John has just in recent times, just over the last four months, made a few posts in one of those groups, amongst his form two former classmates. And he posted, addressing me really, saying, Shane, is it okay for me to talk about in this forum what I saw? And I simply wrote back to him, John, it's up to you. This is a safe space, and if it's your truth, it's your truth, and I think it's okay for you to share in this forum. And so he shared a little bit along the lines of what I've shared with you today in that group. And some people responded quite supportive of him. Other people were silent. Perhaps they had their own thoughts because they didn't have this experience. They didn't see anything like this. Perhaps they just have their doubts like we all do. But as I said in that group, and I've said to John, if it's your story, tell it. And we're all big enough and old enough now to hear those stories and listen to those stories. Had many of you heard that story before? about something coming down the ramp? Can I ask you, does it make the Westall story more believable to you? Or does it make it less believable? You can go either way, you know. Um, But it's John's story. And for those of you who know something about the Westall story, there are one or two others who have some similar memories of something being associated with the objects. There aren't many witnesses who tell this story, not many at all. But, you know what, even though I've been in touch now with more than half of the people who were at Westall High School that day, there's still another half that I've not been in touch with and may never be in touch with. And maybe they have stories like this as well, or maybe stories that are quite different. The next slide. Another photograph from 1966, and it's of the person I refer to as the first cameraman. And this is very much about the long, long search for witnesses that I have been on these past 17 years since I started this caper back in 2005. It's worth persevering, I've noticed, because even after 16 or 17 years pass, New people come out of the woodwork. And recently I located a man named Ray who was the first Channel 9 cameraman on the scene at Westall on the day. He was the first newsman to arrive and film the scene after being dispatched by Channel 9. He is the one, after checking out the story on scene, who advised the newsroom in Richmond, in Melbourne, to send out a reporter and a second cameraman with sound. Ray didn't have the capacity to record audio, just film. And until I received a tip-off a month ago, and this was back in April of last year, I never even knew there was another cameraman, let alone one that was still alive. The reporter that I did know about and the person who turned out to be the second cameraman are now deceased, but this man is still alive and lives still in the suburb that he lived in in 1966, 10 minutes' drive from Westall, a suburb called Dingley Village. And this is a photograph showing Ray taken after the event in that year, 1966, at Moorabbin Airport, the airport just up the road from Westall, about five kilometres away, seated in the rear of the helicopter with his camera. In the front is the helicopter pilot and a Victoria police officer, and it was a story about them searching for a lost person. Ray, in those years, did a lot of work with the police. Ray, on the scene as the first person, he something had come through to Channel 9, a tip-off about something having happened at Westall. He raced out there with his camera. And although he didn't see anything himself in terms of a UFO, he saw the kids and he saw how affected they were. He saw how shook up they were. He also saw the teachers keeping him away from the kids and the kids away from him, ushering the kids into the school buildings. The kids were able to tell him, though, or someone told him, that the flying saucer had gone down to this place called The Grange. He knew about The Grange because he lived not that far away. And he went down there and he remembers, he has these vague memories of seeing circles in the grass. When I contacted Ray, he was very apologetic because he'd recently suffered a stroke and his long-term memory was affected and he felt a little bit embarrassed about that and he probably felt a little bit embarrassed about someone ringing him almost out of the blue about a UFO story from 53 years ago. But he told me as much as he could remember. And when I told him that the Channel 9 film they did make it to the news that night had disappeared, had vanished, he wasn't that surprised by that because and we're going to touch on a little bit more about this in the next slide, a lot of that happened in those years. Film footage was created, news footage was archived, but a lot of that footage got reused or thrown out. It wasn't valued for its true value at the time. Some of it was just simply lost or misplaced. And so for the next slide, this is the news reporter that I knew, always knew about. Not very long after I started researching the Westall story I discovered that the name of the Channel 9 news reporter who was at Westall that day was a fellow called Gordon Lead. It took me years though to find a photograph of Gordon. You know the thing with the Internet? Things get added to the Internet incrementally over time. Something you know that's not there last week will be here this week. And so I'm always scouring the internet, looking for video, looking for photos, looking for data. And I finally found a photo of Gordon Lead, the gentleman in the middle. He and cameraman Keith Ballard interviewed and filmed for the story which aired on the Melbourne News that evening. In those days, you might recall from your own childhoods, the news stations were very much state-based. So a news bulletin that aired in Melbourne, of course, didn't air in Sydney. That's the same today, of course, but in those days I think it was more so. Stories wouldn't necessarily be shared amongst the state bureaus. And if you were living in Victoria, depending on where you lived in Victoria, your regional television station would be connected with a particular Melbourne-based commercial station. So, for example, where I lived in Shepparton, our television station, Channel 6, GMV 6, Goulburn-Murray Valley 6, it was connected with Channel 7. So after we watched the Shepparton news, which was riveting, of course, we'd then have the Melbourne news, but only from Channel 7. We wouldn't see what had aired on Channel 9 or Channel O, as it was called then. There was no SBS. We had the ABC news, of course. But in other parts of Victoria, you were connected with Channel 9. So the story that aired that night was on the Channel 9 news, seen by many, but not all people, in Victoria, and it was read by the very famous then-newsreader Sir Eric Pearce. This photo actually shows Gordon Lead presenting a program on Channel 9 in Perth, where Gordon had moved to a few years after 1966 on the Apollo 13 lunar mission. So this is 1970. To the right of Gordon stands Clive Robertson, who would become well-known across Australia in later years for his work on radio and TV. And I wonder if Gordon was thinking of Westall as he helped to present this program that night. So they're covering the splashdown of the Apollo 13 lunar mission. You can see the map in the background showing Australia, Mauritius, some of the Pacific Islands. When I spoke to Gordon in the years before his death in 2007, he confirmed his role to me in the Westall coverage and that he remembered it very clearly. In fact, he said it stood out amongst the other flying saucer stories that were around in those years for the number of witnesses involved and the quality of their accounts. He, like Ray, wasn't particularly surprised either that the news film had gone missing. Because that happened a lot. The value wasn't understood. Things got damaged. And as I found out, in the 80s or 90s, there was a huge flood at the Channel 9 headquarters in Richmond, in Melbourne. Some of you might know that Channel 9 took over an old factory in Richmond that had been the Bryant and May cigarette factory. So all the plumbing, all the services in that building, well, they were ancient. And the plumbing gave out one day and flooded the basement where the archive was. And a huge amount of archival film was destroyed, lost. And some of it just, of course, had to be thrown out into the dumpster. Maybe that's what happened with the Westall film. Or, you might prefer the story that goes, and this is an anecdotal story, that the then owner of Channel 9, Frank Packer, father of Kerry Packer, had the film sent up to him here in Sydney at the request of a federal government minister. And what happened after that, no one knows. When I told Ross Coulthart that story, many of you would know about Ross and the great work he's been doing in recent years, on TV and writing this wonderful book, of course, In Plain Sight, which also is, devotes some pages to the Westlaw story, Ross went off and contacted the Packer family. And I think he spoke to Carrie, if Kerry was still alive at that time, uh, and spoke to Frank Packer's widow. And Frank Packer's widow had no recollection. No one in Kerry's immediate family had any recollection of this story of the Westlaw film going up to Frank and it being sent to someone else. So we don't know if it's true or if it's not. However, back to Gordon Lead, it is worth remembering that on the 7th of April 1966, the day after the Westall incident, this man, Gordon Lead, sent a letter to the Department of Air in Canberra seeking information about UFOs in Australia. And I'll talk more about that in a moment. The next slide. Again, the long, long search for witnesses, and this time, another fireman steps forward. It's another one because years before, early on in my research, I tracked down two separate firefighters from two separate fire brigades that were responded to Westall that day. One from the Metropolitan Fire Brigade, based at this station, Oakley Station, another from the Country Fire Authority station, based at Springvale. Even though Westall was in the zone for the Metropolitan Fire Brigade, it was at the very extremity of that zone. And the Springvale Country Fire Authority volunteer station was physically closer as the crow flies. And so often, both fire stations would be contacted, both fire brigades would respond. And that's what happened at Westall. And I wrote in August of last year, Even in COVID-19 lockdown here in Canberra and in Melbourne and Sydney and elsewhere, the research continues. Thanks to a lead unearthed by Westall High School witness Terry Peck, a fireman from Oakley Fire Station has spoken with me today about what he remembers. And at the age of 84, former firefighter Gordon tells me something, tells me that he sometimes has better recall about things which happened 50 years ago than things which happened last week, which I can relate to, of course. Gordon was one of the youngest firemen at Oakley Station in 1966 at the age of 29. Gordon was quick to tell me that although they didn't see anything resembling a flying saucer, they had received the report of something resembling a flying saucer coming down at the Grange behind Westall High School. Now, the Grange was an area that was well known to the fireies, as they would often be responded there, to grass fires and fires involving dumped cars. They would often, Gordon told me, see strange lights in and around the trees at the Grange at night. It was a strange place, a spooky place. But this call was in broad daylight. And on arrival, Gordon's crew, probably a crew of two firemen, manning the station's comma 1,200-litre fire tanker, that's this very truck at this very station, and this was the fire truck of choice for places where there was not ready access to fire hydrants, they were met with a strange scene in the Grange of a large circle of flattened grass that seemed to be singed in some way around the edge. There were lots of people milling around, lots of kids from the school, and the talk was that a flying saucer had landed in that spot. Gordon had never seen anything like it before. With no actual emergency to deal with, the crew eventually went back to the fire station. Gordon recalls, though, that the bosses, the fire brigade's district officers, were not keen for this call to be recorded in the books, certainly not as a flying saucer and that anything odd in those days was often just recorded as a false alarm anyway. Gordon doubts that anything now will be be found amongst the official documents of the Metropolitan Fire Brigade and believe me, I've looked and we can't find anything. In subsequent calls though, down to the Grange, in later months and years, the fire crew would often joke if they were going to be responding to the aliens again. Gordon is sure though that the witnesses at Westall must have seen something strange, and we'd be mad to think that we're alone. But something happened, something came down, and whatever it was, it left again. And he was a witness to what was left behind by that whatever it was. Gordon has now passed away, and I'm so glad I got to speak to him, literally, months before he did so. <coughs> the next slide. Sometimes you might think, the more flying sources in a story, the better. The more circles, the more ground marks in a story, the better. Well, you have to be careful what you wish for, because sometimes you can have too much of a good thing. And sometimes it can get very confusing and very convoluted. Again, as the researcher, other researchers are here today amongst us, it's our job to try to make sense of it all. But there were a lot of circles that were seen in different places around Westall. And here are a couple more into the mix. I wrote, In recent weeks, two days before today's anniversary article appeared on the Channel 9 website, so again this was two years ago, Two people who were in primary school back in 1966 contacted me to reveal that they had seen circles in the grass at the time of the Westall incident too, only that these circles were in previously unreported locations. First, a man called Stan, who had been a student at Clayton South State School, about two kilometres west of Westall State School, explained to me that he and lots of other students from the school had rushed over Clayton Road, the school, the road rather, their school was on, to Fairbank Road, the road that literally connected their school with Westall State School, after they had heard a loud sound that was reportedly associated with the flying saucer passing overhead. The flying saucer had apparently landed and then taken off again. When the students arrived at the location the flying saucer was seen to have descended there they found a large circle in the grass. The circle was near the base of the first power pylon in Fairbank Road, closest to Clayton Road. And I think we have a photograph of that location taken from Google Earth. So it's the one at the top So the power pylon is still there today. Around it now, of course, there's lots of businesses, warehouses, buildings. Those buildings weren't there then. This man remembered that the military arrived on the scene shortly afterwards and was seen cordoning off the area before all the kids were ushered back into their school. The second person, a woman named Lauren who'd been a student at Whiteside State School in Springvale. Remember that school I mentioned earlier? The fellow, Russell, down at the Grange, who was there that day and not at Whiteside State School? Um, I'm not sure if Lauren can spread any light on why Russell wasn't at school that day, but perhaps I should ask her. I can't remember if I've asked her or not. But she remembers that the day after the Westall sightings, she recalled seeing a large circle of flattened grass in a paddock owned by Vic Rail the Victorian State Rail Authority, between Westall Road and the end of Whitworth Avenue, close to where she lived. This is literally the end of Whitworth Avenue, the bottom photograph, and where all those cars and other buildings are now, again, it was just open ground paddocks with those power pylons there. They're still there today. The paddock, she wrote, was commonly used by people walking between Springvale and Westall and the circle was near an informal soccer pitch that was there at the time. She even recalled the type of grass the circle was in. It was called Guildford onion grass, Romulea rosea in Latin. Isn't that wonderful, getting that sort of detail? And that it was flattened in a clockwise direction. One wonders how many other circle and flying saucer stories are out there from Westall, and it surrounds from that day or that week, and what on earth, or off it, does it all mean? You may have picked up, there's a bit of a connection between these power lines and this flying saucer story. Is it possible for circles to be formed in the grass underneath high-voltage power lines? Or is there some other connection between the flying saucers, the UFOs, Whatever they are, and the power lines, things for us to ponder. And of course, Westall is not the only instance in which we've seen this sort of connection between power lines and UFOs. The next slide. Racing the Undertaker. I feel like I've spent the last 17 years of my life racing the Undertaker, and as the years go by, I'm running even faster, and I begin to think I'm running towards my own undertaker. <laughs> because we all are. Just hope it's a nice undertaker when I get there. I'm sure they will be. But the people who were at Westall that day, of course, are older than me. I wasn't born until the following year. That's how young I am. I was born in 1967. But people pass away. And people pass away at all sorts of ages. And of course, you're always racing against time. And I wrote, when researching a story as old as this, one is so conscious of the passage of time. None of us are getting any younger, wiser hopefully, but not younger. And without being too morbid, of course, that applies to the people who might have information about the Westall incident, even the key to solving it. And that's not just the witnesses, of course, but it's the people who were there, in uniform, representing whatever government agencies were involved that day. And every now and then, I do hear of the passing of a witness who has, some years before, come forward and entrusted me with information. One such person was Stuart. Stuart was a 15-year-old student at a school close to Westall. Stuart recently passed away. But when we first spoke, he shared with me what he remembered of his experience at Westall that day, which he described as both beautiful and scary. Stuart told me that the authorities came to a paddock at the Grange, near the old Grange mansion, surrounded by those trees you can see there in the distance. And he was very specific that he remembered it being only a few hundred years, a few hundred yards rather, from that old house, near those pine trees, and not the other pine trees that we've seen earlier at the western end of the Grange property, where nearly all other Westall witnesses remember being the locus of the activity. He remembered it specifically as being in that spot, opposite the mill that stood there on the corner of Osborne Avenue and Westall Road. And shortly after Stuart arrived, the authorities arrived also driving dark colored cars that appeared to be Fords or Mercurys Hudsons, and when they got out, they weren't wearing uniforms, just black suits. He watched as they used black and white cameras to record the flying saucer that was still on the ground in front of him. And they started examining the circles. The flying saucer he saw had four legs underneath it. The men in the dark suit stayed for five or ten minutes. Stuart, at the time, thought they were cops from Springvale Police Station, but later on he began thinking that maybe they were more like the MIB, Men in Black, that he knew from the X-Files show. There were some other spectators present as well, and they were told to clear off and forget about it. Stuart remembered specifically being told to bugger off. The flying saucer had burnt the ground, And when it took off, it took off silently. It hovered, waited, and then it was gone in an instant. He heard that there was a second flying saucer, but did not see it. The landing site was even viewable from Westall Road, just on the other side of those trees. And in his memory, the circle and the associated marks in the ground and grass just grew over. His sister recalls Stuart, talking about the incident over the years, and that he was in no doubt that what he saw was not from this world. Let's hope more people like Stuart continue to come forward and talk about what they saw. It may not allow us to solve the mystery of what was seen that day, but it does allow the people who were caught up in the experience to express what they saw. The next picture, please. If these weatherboards could talk, a lot of the houses that used to be around the Westall schools were houses like this weatherboard, like the two houses that I grew up in as a kid in Shepparton. This is a relatively recent photograph of this house. Back in 1966, it looked better than this. But in this house lived a family. And within hours of the events happening, two men in suits walked to the very front door of this house and spoke words to the man and woman living there, words that would ensure their silence for the rest of their lives. These men wore suits and not a uniform, but they didn't seem to be police detectives. They were from the authorities, again. That is all that is known. That, and that they told the married couple, aged in their 40s, living there, that they were to never talk about the incident at Westall, ever. The couple's children, two of whom were already young adults in 1966, remember, told me, that any mention of the flying saucer incident by them, at the time or later, would cause their mum and dad to freeze and become visibly frightened their parents flatly refused to talk about it. And they told their children that it was no use trying to talk to other neighbours about it either, as no one would discuss it. They'd been visited as well. Others in the street, including another older relative who lived nearby as a market gardener. And their father was no shrinking violet. He'd been a soldier in the Second World War, he was working then as a railway guard at a nearby railway station. But seemingly, promises had been extracted from these good, hard-working, down-to-earth people of Westall to keep a secret. A secret that even the passing of decades could not dent. And the keeping of that secret would, for years, cause a reaction in a mother and a father that, looking back on it now, their 83-year-old daughter that I've spoken to still finds so absolutely perplexing. What words indeed were uttered on this veranda all those years ago, and why? The next slide, I have to warn you, is of a highball Highball, a high-altitude balloon, part of the official Highball program that ran in the 1960s, where balloons were sent aloft. It was an Australian-American government program involving the Australian Department of Supply, a huge federal government department, and the American Atomic Atomic Energy Commission. And they were using these balloons and the equipment that was connected to them to sample radioactivity in the atmosphere to test how much residue was left after the atomic testing in Australia and atomic testing that was being done by other countries around the world. And in recent times you may have heard that some people have put forward a hypothesis that perhaps what was seen at Westall that day had something to do with a highball balloon and its associated parachute canopy and equipment gondola going off course, if you like, and coming down at Westall. And I spoke in part about that with a man called Wayne, who was the son of a lady who lived in that house, that old weatherboard house that we saw in the previous slide. And his mum, her name was Nola and she lived in that old weatherboard house at 55 Rosebank Avenue. And she saw the UFO from her front garden while she was watering her tomato plants. I told you the house looked better back in 66. The garden looked much different. Mm
4: -hmm.
2: And she saw the UFO coming down at the Grange from the front yard. Wayne had actually heard the story first while he was visiting his aunt, his mum's sister Yvonne, as she was dying in Swan Hill Hospital in Victoria. And he listened as the sisters, his mum and aunts, reminisced. And he heard his aunt Yvonne ask, ''Do you remember the spaceship in the backyard?'' And Nola, his mum, replied, ''Of course.'' ''What became of that?'' Aunt Yvonne asked. And Nola replied, ''Nothing.'' Sometime later, Wayne asked his mother about the conversation he had heard at the hospital. And his mother told him something about what she had seen. Wayne asked his mother whether it could have been something like a hot air balloon. His mum, Nola, looked at him incredulously and curtly told him that every classroom in every school in Australia in those days probably had pictures of hot air balloons and that hot air balloons don't look like what she saw. And they don't land and then take off again and speed away. I first made contact with Wayne when he left comments on a YouTube video. Thank God for YouTube. Because there's been quite a few videos about Westall and other UFO stories and people leave comments of course. And my job as a poor old researcher is to go through those comments in my vast amounts of spare time and uh, see if there are any comments about Westall. Waynes was one of those. And he wrote on YouTube, I didn't know anything about this story till last year when my auntie died. My mother and her two sisters were talking in the hospital room and started saying, do you remember the time when this happened and that happened and then the UFO landed near our house? My ears pricked up and they asked a lot of questions later. My mother was not at the school. As I've said earlier, he wrote, she was standing in the front yard. And he remembers her describing it as being way faster than any technology at that time. Unmanned weather balloons, he wrote, don't land and take off like that. They land slowly and will bob along the tree line with a gust of wind and crash close by. I have seen that happen with manned balloons in suburban Melbourne where I live. Something strange happened that day at Westall. It was hushed up. And I cannot believe now that I am almost 50 and I have only just found out about one of the biggest UFO stories in the history of the modern world. If it wasn't for my aunties, my mother would never have spoken about it ever with me. To me, it shows how something so extraordinary can just drift into nothingness. To be fair, from my mother's perspective, it was pretty unremarkable. A big silver object flies across, lands, takes off again, and that's what she saw. It even sounds like a highball balloon if you didn't know that they can't take off again, like this did. To the normal person, this is pretty unremarkable, he wrote. If you don't buy into all that movie and TV hype at the time, until you put it into a bigger perspective. I love how people say, so many people saw it, but it was just mass hysteria, mass hysteria. But the reality is, he wrote, so many people saw it from so many different angles. No technology at that time can come close. Look at the footage of classified stuff of that period that has been released recently. Nothing comes close to what that craft did. It wasn't until three years later that man landed on the moon, and that wasn't cutting edge technology. It was cutting edge technology for the time, but it was just big firing rockets, or there were big aircraft with huge wings. Not a round saucer, a round saucer-shaped object that lands and takes off at great speed with no sound and then disappears. He finally wrote, from what I have heard firsthand, by an independent witness and now seen on this video, it's pretty obvious that something strange happened at Westall that day, something that was monumental for its time. If it happened today, I would be more likely to say it was something experimental. But we have to distance ourselves. From what was on TV in 1966 and what was really involved at test cases in the world at the time. That stuff was crude, noisy, and primitive, not sleek, silent, and elegant. Balloons in Australia from CSIRO were very crude and like a cheap Hollywood set. A highball landing would have been a very impressive sight, but nothing like what was described to me by my mum I hope one day somebody from official sources comes forward to say what it was but i suspect they never will as they only got to see some black and white photographs taken after the event none of them apart from those pilots that some people reported in the aircraft nearby witnessed it firsthand and even then it would have been hard for them to see from those cockpits. That was Wayne, sharing the memories of his mum, Nola, and his aunt, Yvonne, from a house made of weatherboard that is diagonally opposite Westall High School. It's still there today, as I mentioned. I saw it when I was in Westall six weeks ago. And uh, it gave Nola and other people in and around that house an amazing view across the open paddocks to the school and to the Grange. It's time now for me to finish with two more witness videos that I hope you will enjoy very much. Again, from that filmmaker I mentioned at the earlier at the earlier part of my talk, Shane Gardam. The first one is Shane filming a man called. Lance Brown, who was in Form 1, aged about 12 or 13, in 1966.
8: In that morning, probably around about 9.30, we were in the science room, attending a science class. It was easy to be distracted because you could look out over the uh, playing fields, and I'm not sure who, but someone spotted something quite unusual in the sky. I'm sure everyone in the class was uh, shocked to see these two objects, you know, disc in shape, and they uh, moved sideways very quickly. Yeah, it was a very clear day too; like the, the objects stood out against the uh, you know the blue horizon. Uh, the teacher, Mr. Greenwood, got quite animated and uh, said, we, uh, we're doing science, we should go out and investigate it. I remember he, he ran down uh, the science teacher with us, we are going out of the classroom, out of the, down the corridor, came out, still saw the two objects moving rapidly left and right, then they dropped out of sight, disappeared behind the pine trees, Well, a number of the students decided to go and investigate it. We went down there, couldn't sort of, didn't find any, anything concerning the uh, bright silver objects, but there, there was grass squashed down, slightly, slightly singed and, you know, circular in shape, and we thought this was quite, quite uh, strange. You know, there was probably 25 kids down there, all quite uh, excitable. But when you had to go into that area, you got in amongst the large trees, so if something uh, ascended, quite easily not see it once you are in the wooded area. We sort of investigated and then thought, well, I we can't see anything, I don't know, they've, just, they've gone. The uh, headmaster of the school at assembly and advised you were not to go out and talk to the press, which I think most people... Didn't have any intention because they didn't see anything. It was only a small minority, but uh, a couple of the girls, they went out and spoke to the press and got suspended. As time went on, it was only in the Daniel Journal, it was the only paper that printed anything. Uh, it's a much smaller area these days. It's, a, it's an actual park, but it was just vacant land. But the military cordoned the area off the, that evening, and uh, I think for some days you couldn't enter the area. Tanya Kremel, you know, she seemed to have gone to the sick bay afterwards and apparently, you know, she did uh, break down. Shortly after she left the school and, and no one heard of her again. She was very highly strung, very talkative, very active and um, she was very outgoing. And I recalled her name, I couldn't understand how no one else knew it and it seemed to have sparked other memories for other people. No one seems to know what happened to her. Yeah, if they came back, well, I won't be looking out the window at Westall High School. If they do, you'd hope to to twig your memory and uh, be like yesterday.
2: And before we play the next one, what I love about the Westall story is, gosh, it's an Aussie story with an Aussie accent, with Aussie characters. I mean, I have an Australian accent too, of course, but uh, uh, Lance has a wonderful accent. And the Westall people, they're very down to earth. They're very ordinary people, as am I, as we all are, I guess, who have had an extraordinary experience. And they tell the story in a very down-to-earth, matter-of-fact, factual way. And Lance is one of those. And Lance still pops up on the Facebook page. He posts every now and again supporting the story as he remembers it, supporting other witnesses as they remember it. The next video is slightly longer, not too much longer, and it's from Joy.
5: I honestly think it was something from somewhere else, unless somebody can stand up and say it wasn't. The intent to cover it up was was so intense. I think they were frightened of necessary because of being with Vietnam and the Cold War and all sorts of stuff going on in the 60s. Well it was the 6th of April 1966 and it was a Wednesday and I was in science class and a student ran in, it was about 20 past 10 in the morning just before morning recess, flung the door open and said Mr Greenwood, Mr Greenwood, there's flying saucers in the sky, there's UFOs or things in the sky. Once I got out onto the oval and saw what I saw, I was absolutely transfixed. my whole vision was on trying to, to just look at what I was seeing in the sky and take in every single detail I could. They were like flying saucers, and that's what we used to call them in those days, you know, in, in comic books and all that sort of stuff. That's what they were, they were flying saucers, so we called them flying saucers. And that's exactly what they were, and they were amazing.
6: Taking into account the information and descriptions of the event by many eyewitnesses, it is very likely that the craft spotted in the sky were a type of experimental military aircraft. A circular wing has frequently been tested, most notably during the top-secret project 1794. The project aimed to create a flying saucer capable of supersonic speeds, its name being the Avrocar. The development of the Avrocar coincided with the arms race of the Cold War, being introduced in 1958 and then retired by 1961. Its creator Jack Frost pioneered designs that could achieve vertical takeoff and landing. Many UFO sightings around this period were put down to possible military testing. Interestingly, the declassified report by the FBI as a part of Project Blue Book shows a clear spike of UFO sightings in 1966, the year of this event.
5: Assessments probably from Morabin, because we were very close to Morabin Airport. Now they came in and they were buzzing them. Now we were watching all this and it was like they were playing cat and mouse and jeeps turned up. Now they looked like army jeeps and they had the covers over the back and whatever. And then the men got out of the jeeps, they were talking to each other and then they all jumped back in and they took off and they went down to what was obviously down towards the Grange somewhere.
6: It is general procedure for an experimental craft to be flanked by supporting aircraft. This includes a ground team made up of numerous personnel. The flight itself would be monitored closely by relevant officials. At any given time, thousands of military American personnel are stationed in Australia. It is a possibility that they could have been involved in such a project here in Australia. Though the Avrocar was discontinued due to the expense of the project and thrustability issues, there is a possibility that different varieties of the craft were tested elsewhere.
5: Principal Mr Zambleby, who absolutely ruled with an iron fist, um, told us that we were not to talk to anybody, not to speak to anybody in the media. What we'd seen was a weather balloon. But as he was telling us that in the assembly behind him, you could see these other people in the background, they weren't up close, but you could see the people in the suits and whatever else in the uniforms. In a way, we were threatened, we were bullied to, you know, because we were told, don't or if you do, you going to get into trouble. And But I was lucky because my parents believed me. Some of the other kids' parents didn't. Over the years, I've had people, lots of people, just look at me with like, oh, really? You know, and, and like I said, just make comments about you're being crazy and you don't know what you're talking about and it couldn't have happened and it's all in your head and all you know it's just stuff and that's why a lot of people haven't spoken about it because a lot of the kids went on to be you know as we all did in pursued careers you know all of us moved into different areas so some people of course haven't spoken about it because it would have affected their careers. I've always been sort of of the attitude that I don't have to justify myself to anybody because I know what I saw and nothing's ever going to change that and that's in my head, that's in my brain and it's an experience like nothing else that I've ever had before except for the birth of my son which is just in in my brain, it's a memory that's never ever going to leave regardless. All we want is an answer. All we want is for someone to say to us that, yes, we know what that did happen that day. It was a very extraordinary experience, but something definitely did happen that day. It wasn't in your imagination. You weren't on drugs. You weren't drunk. It happened.
2: Do you honestly think you'll get an answer one day? We live in hope.
5: We live in hope.
2: Isn't Joy wonderful? Can I make a comment? Of course you can make a comment, sure.
4: She's got the answer. We don't need officials and experts and government bodies to tell us what we saw and to intimidate people into not believing their own eyes. It really
2: triggers me all this stuff. <laughs> and and and. Can I say I'm sorry, too, if if there's triggering that goes on for you, for any of you that's that's difficult and uh, um, hard for you to hear. And I do apologise for that. It's not my intention, of course, to trigger anything for you. Um, But I think you know you're amongst friends here, too. And hearing Joy, her voice, her story, the way she expresses it, reminds us, as I said at the beginning, it's a human story, as all UFO stories really are. Like that classic line from Steven Spielberg's movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the French fellow says, it's an event sociological. It's something about that touches our society. It's touching us as individuals. Whatever it is that's behind the UFO phenomena or phenomenon, whatever it was behind what happened at Westall. The fellow who made that documentary, how many of you have seen that film before? Made by a fellow called Jack from Deakin University. And he was a bit apologetic afterwards because after it was put onto YouTube, there was some commentary about how could you possibly conclude it was the Avro car that was seen at Westall. And he apologized that they got the emphasis wrong. And what he was trying to do was to express it as a possible solution, a possible answer, not the answer, but it didn't necessarily come across that way. I mean, I've always suspected the Canadians myself, but the Avrocar, of course, was Canadian made um, aircraft, and eventually there was a um, a collaboration with the US Air Force between the Canadian Avrocar company based outside of Toronto and the Americans, but it didn't go anywhere in the end, as, as most of you would know. Another work of art, this one by a Colombian artist. It's not of the Westall story, but when I found this, I thought, oh my gosh, to me, that speaks to me of the Westall story. It's not Westall, doesn't necessarily look that much like Westall, but it spoke to me of what happened at Westall and experiences like that. And I mentioned also that some people have made music based on Westall. In fact, I was approached at a gathering in Melbourne a couple of years ago. Oh yeah, let's play this. This is some of the music. Can we hear it? Well, what you call this sort of music? But <laughs> electronic could be. that will do. That's probably enough. Now the music may not be your cup of tea, and it's sort of electronic music. Some people were dancing to it though, which was very interesting. Uh, so thank you for that. I was approached a couple of years ago by a couple in Melbourne at an event being run by the Victorian UFO Action Group. It was called the Westall Witnesses Speak event, where we gathered uh, some of the Westall Witnesses together, and they approached me about making a musical based on the Westall story, which I thought was wonderful. Nothing's come of it yet, but this is the way stories like this inspire people. And it's important, and this is how I end the Westall segment, by the way, to always understand context when it comes to UFO stories. And often, of course, we're lacking the context. We don't know the full context of a story. But it's interesting to look at what we do know. And I didn't know that there was another school sighting, a much smaller scale one, involving just three school kids, on the 4th of April, two days before the Westall incident in Melbourne. Now some of you might remember the 4th of April is interesting because that's the day a fellow called Ron Sullivan had an experience on a country highway in central Victoria when he was driving along and his headlights became bent off the road towards this light display that was happening in a paddock off to the right of his vehicle and he almost lost control of his vehicle, almost crashed the Ron Sullivan bent lights UFO incident, 4th of April 1966. Courtesy of a relatively new Facebook page called Vic UFO, run by a wonderful fellow called Ben Hurl, who some of you will know. He was associated with the Victorian UFO Action Group for many years. He found this for me, and it's an article from a Ballarat newspaper. A flying object says the girls, and it's from Ballarat Girls High School, and it reads, on with the glasses, <clears throat> three students at the Ballarat Girls High School yesterday told a secret they had kept for 10 days. They saw an unidentified flying object on the same day Mr. Ron Sullivan of Maryborough saw a mysterious column of light on the Bendigo St. Arnold Road. The girls, pupils of Form 2, had been reluctant to mention the sighting because they thought no one would believe them. The current worldwide interest in sightings of flying saucers prompted them to tell their secret yesterday. Annette Mackenzie, 12, Glenda Sandford, 14, and Marion Deppeler, 13, claimed to have seen an object on the sky about 12.45pm last Monday week as they walked across the school oval. Annette said it was the height of an aeroplane, and each girl gave an identical description of the sighting. They said the object was oval-shaped and moved slowly to the southwest. They had it in view for five minutes. Its shape was clearly defined, and it appeared to be a silver colour. It made no sound. Both Annette and Marion told their parents of the sighting last week. Glenda told no one. I thought people would think I was seeing things. she said. Gosh, we've heard that before, haven't we? So many times. And I think we're almost out of time, aren't we? Is it time for a cuppa? Time for a cuppa? Then my very last slide is this one. We can't ignore it because it's a Holden car. (laughs) And we don't see many of these anymore or any Holden cars at all. And this is a 1952 FJ Holden. Why am I showing you this? Because a group of young men in a car, several days after Westall, four days on the 10th of April, had this experience. One of them contacted me. It was Easter Sunday. We had to be back in Victoria to start work on the Tuesday. Remember the Easter long weekend after the, well, after the end of school term at Westall. We were driving in a southerly direction along the Cobb Highway, coming back from Ivanhoe, heading towards Hay. Then, nothing more than a dusty red dirt road full of ruts and corrugations until the car, this type of car in 1952, F.J. Holden, finally gave up. The U-bolts holding the axle housing to the rear spring assembly had snapped off on the passenger side, and the cooling also gouged the hole right into the radiator due to the unending shuddering and shaking off the vehicle while driving over the rough corrugations on the road. Apart from that, the car was fine. As it was dusk, we decided to set up tent and stay there on the roadside overnight, hoping someone would come along the next day. However, before we got out, one of the boys, Ron or Graham, I can't remember which, pointed out that a strange craft was hovering near the car on the passenger side. It wasn't very far away at all. I guess over 50, though less than 100 metres away, and hovering between 25 to 50 metres above the ground. This was arid land, with no trees at all. Just tusks of grass, so visibility was good, with very few clouds through it, though it was nearing dusk. I'm afraid the toll of time has diminished the accuracy of the measurements but they would be somewhere within these parameters. The craft was what you would call a typical flying saucer, a cupola shape on a saucer, and was emitting white light from several portholes at this stage. The light emitting from the portholes is what Ron had first noticed, and I assume that it had been silently following us for some time, observing us before we stopped. From memory, over 40 years ago, It looked very ominous and large, a minimum of 10 metres in diameter. Silver in colour. It looked similar to aluminium. The craft remained absolutely stationary and motionless. There was no noise whatsoever and no heat vapours coming off it. After about half an hour, suddenly, without warning, it shot off horizontally, accelerating from a stationary position as quickly as a bullet fired from a rifle. Heading directly east, accelerating at an amazing velocity and then incredibly it changed direction turning directly into a right angle vertical climb without changing speed. There was no sonic boom as you would expect with an aircraft breaking the speed of sound, no noise at all. By this time the seized engine of the car had cooled down enough for it to start so we tied the rear end of the car to the chassis with the handbrake cable that we had quickly cut off and as it was now dark drove down the road for a few miles, in case it came back. I got to Melbourne on the following Wednesday, and heard from my friend who had hitchhiked home that a UFO had been sighted in Melbourne, and had been in the newspapers. I didn't see any of the newspaper articles, so assumed it was the one we had seen. A few years later, this man, Lee, was an officer with the Royal Australian Air Force stationed up the road here at an Air Force base base called the First Central Ammunition Depot at Orchard Hills. And that's when he heard first specifically about the Westall incident, it was 1988, from another RAAF officer. That man later became an Air Vice Marshal with the Royal Australian Air Force. And Lee heard about the Westall story from this later Air Vice Marshal, because he had friends, friends or family, at Westall High School. And Lee heard that indeed the Air Force had attended at Westall. And he heard that Royal Australian Air Force Air Defence Guards had been sent to Westall as part of the turnout, the response. And the RAAF had covered over the story, had said that it was an experimental craft, because they were very concerned, about the panic that might ensue if people knew that it was something different. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you very much, and thank you again for your patience and for listening to me. I know I've been talking a lot, reading a lot, and it's not the most ideal way of presenting. If I was doing a TEDx talk, I'd be roaming around on the stage and I'd be looking at you and the arms up in the air and But unfortunately, because I want to get so much information over to you and I want it to be authentic and to the witnesses. And, of course, I've got the memory of a 55-year-old now. And so, sorry about all the reading. But now for the doppelganger part. And Paul. Paul's gone. No, there he is. Hi, Paul. And Paul is doing such an amazing job with the PowerPoint presentation because there are three things you should never work with. Animals, children and PowerPoint. And I haven't used PowerPoint in years, even though I work in education and all, I, I just haven't. But Paul's helped me so much. Westall's Doppelganger. So, as I mentioned earlier, when I came to a UFO Research New South Wales meeting years ago, someone very kindly gave me this book in which is mentioned a UFO incident which happened at another school on exactly the same day, one year to the day later, the 6th of April. 1967 in Miami. And even though I haven't talked about it very much or probably at all, the Crestview event was over three days, 6 to the 8th of April. Westall was also over more than one day. People saw things on days subsequent to the 6th and that's part of the Westall story as well. This school, uh, if we can go to the next slide, Paul, here you can see some images. You can see the date there. That's the second date, in fact. Not everyone knows the dates well. It's a bit like the Rendlesham incident. People struggled a lot in the early days with understanding what were the right dates and times. The Crestview Elementary School, about 21 kilometres north-east of the Miami CBD in Florida. Westall is 21 kilometers southeast of the Melbourne CBD. Don't get me started on the patterns. And I love this wonderful old Doctor Who episode where Doctor Who, I think being at that time played by John Pertwee, marvels at the human beings and how they love to find patterns in things. And of course, wherever I go, I see the number 66 and 1966 everywhere. It's spooky, but that's people for you, that's us human beings. Crestview Elementary School, a primary school. And to give you the basic details, And this was an incident, by the way, that was investigated at the time by the Aerial Phenomena Research Organisation, APRO, their representative, Dr Irving Lillian, who was a chemistry professor at Miami-Dade Community College uh, and at University of Miami, a fellow called Mr Arthur Brest, also from APRO, and then a fellow called John Gramlich from the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, NICAP. It went into the Miami newspapers in the subsequent days and it was picked up in another magazine a month later, and then like Westall went under the carpet. Never heard of again. Almost completely forgotten. On the 6th of April 1967 at 12:47 pm, grade four teacher Mr. Robert Apfel and six students outside in a portable classroom. At the back of a line of students filing into class, spotted aluminium appearing, slightly reflective ellipsoid objects. Two lenses back to back is how it was described, with no markings, lights, or other details. It was stationary, this particular UFO was stationary above a phone pole a mile away, northeast of the school. The UFO vanished while being watched suddenly, with no sound with no air movement, no shadows. The next day, 8.28am, the 7th of April, Mr Apfel arrives to find kids excited, crying, hysterical, having seen a UFO, much closer to the school this time than the day before. Mr Apfel calmed the class and had them draw the UFO, which was different from what they'd seen the day before, a turreted structure, like having a little tower on top and it was among the tops of the trees, directly north of the school, in a field similar, in a way, to the Grange south of the schools at Westall. It appeared to flip and land on top of the trees, and some remember there being an antennae shaped object protruding from its top, but it was silent. Just after 9.45 that morning, morning recess, 200 students and at least two teachers, Mrs Virginia Martin, grade 6, Miss Marion Waters, also Grade 6, saw one to three oval silent objects hovering behind a pine tree north of the school. The UFOs flew closer to the school, then returned to the pine tree and descended. Later it ascended and flew off to the west. The event lasted about 10 minutes. Three Air Force investigators from the nearby Homestead Air Force Base investigated that afternoon. Students and adults gathered at a field after school looking for the UFOs, but they did not see any. And if we go to the next slide, this is a photograph of Crestview Elementary School as it appears now or recently. So there are two long buildings you can see in the middle, similar to the Westall High School buildings. They were two long buildings. On the other side of those two long buildings, On the far side are some new buildings that weren't there in 1967. That was an open area. There were some portable classrooms there. Playing field off to the left. And you can see all those houses to the other side of the school. That was the area where the field was. There were no houses there. Scattered trees, some more trees further back, in a way similar to the Grange at Westall. The next photograph is the Miami Herald newspaper from the Saturday after the event. And if we go to the next photograph, it shows us it in colour, and you can see there's a photograph, bottom left-hand corner, and then the next slide is another copy of that image close up, showing the kids and adults gathered in that field on the Friday after school, looking for the UFOs, but not seeing them, this article came out on the Saturday morning. When it came out, something happened on that Saturday morning at nine forty five am. Cigar shaped white lights on each tip of an object were seen hovering over the trees near this field. It descended and ascended. another object came in straight across the fly, the sky flying up and down in an undulating manner. A third UFO appeared, and it appeared to be pursuing a plane. That morning, 30 to 40 people gathered in this field, but this is the field the day before, and what they saw were globs of white with red flashes alternating from oval-shaped to cigar-shaped with transparent domes on top. Planes from the nearby North Perry Airport were flying close by, but the UFOs vanished when the planes were present, then reappeared afterwards. And in 1971, a Grade 6 class at the school was played a taped interview given by their teacher in 1967 to the Air Force, describing to them what she had witnessed. The teacher recounted the fear and panic that had gripped the school, and how soldiers had arrived as the UFOs were still on the ground and flying overhead. So that's a pressy of what happened at Crestview, and I think you can already hear some of the connecting, corresponding parallels with what happened at Westall. So, once I found out that this had happened, I, of course, scoured the internet for any information that was relevant to this event. The National UFO Reporting Centre, fortunately based in the United States, had an interesting set of reports that had been sent in, one after the other over several years, which gradually built up a picture of what had happened at Crestview. The reports were from people who had been at Crestview pleading with anyone out there in cyberspace at the reporting centre who knew anything about what they remembered happening at Crestview. The first report was in 2004, and the report said, did anyone see the UFOs hovering over Opa Locker Elementary School? It's Crestview Elementary School in the suburb of Opa Locker, around 1966-1967. So this person is remembering, trying to get the date right, trying to get the name right. This is more of a plea for confirmation rather than an actual report. The reason I've decided to actually contact someone about this is that I have had memories of this incident that have haunted me for over 40 years and that I was never quite sure was real or a dream. That is, until I mentioned it to my father 10 years ago. He died in 1996 and he said, it really happened. I wanted to investigate it then, but was sidetracked. Then yesterday, my younger sister and I were discussing some childhood memories and she asked me, What was that about UFOs at our school? I knew it was time to ask someone who could actually find information and probably others who remember this incident. I was attending the school in the northernmost part of Miami and this is the memory I have. At around noon, the police and a lot of military, probably National Guard, came and evacuated the school. There were a lot of people standing around watching, but I just remember being escorted from school. There were a lot of people standing, and I saw myself three UFOs hovering over the schoolyard. Rounded sides, shaped a lot like a turnover. One long side with two shorter coming to a point in the center. They were metallic, very smooth, rounded. I don't remember any sound. There was one hovering over the portable building, one over the woods just beside the school playgrounds and one on the other side of the school i don't remember seeing that one but for some reason i know it was there i can't imagine that it was in the miami that it wasn't in the miami herald i have no way to find out myself i am really curious to see how they explained this one if my memory is correct they hovered there for most of the evening i don't know how long or anything about their departure i don't remember them arriving just seeing them as we were escorted. And I know my sister also remembers. I want answers. Please help if you can. The military doesn't evacuate schools due to weather balloons.' (laughs) Two years later, a reply came to the National UFO Reporting Centre. I am responding to a sighting reported on this site. I was telling co-workers about what I experienced when I was nine years old at my elementary school. One of my co-workers went onto your website and found where someone else had reported basically the same thing that I had experienced. This happened at school and from my memory it was called Crestview Elementary School in Opa Locker. This happened in 1966 still getting the dates, trying to get them right, from my recollection. We were in school and all of a sudden our teacher told us to be very quiet and not get up from our seats. It seemed like we were sitting there forever when finally I began to see military men with Air Force hats, caps, walking around outside our classrooms. They came from the homestead base. I remember that finally they allowed the kids who walked home or rode bikes home to leave the school. As I was leaving, I remember looking to the north by the playgrounds, so the north on the other side of the school. And my. Oh, so, where I was, I remember um, I looked to the north and I remember seeing a shiny silver disc by the streetlight north of the school. I remember my mum asking me why I was home from school early and I told her to call the school, that they had sent us home early. One block over from us lived the science teacher who had her classroom in the portables in the playground. My mum talked to her and she said to my mum that if you hear reported that something landed next to the portable at the school, that it was true. She said that she was worried about her job, so she wasn't supposed to talk about it. So that is why she told my mum that if she heard about something landed at the school, it was true, but didn't come out right out directly and tell her that herself. I wanted to assure the person who reported this to you two years ago if they are still looking for someone who remembers this incident, I do. Just like they said, it seemed exciting to us. But I was also scared, probably because of the appearance of so many military men in our hallways. I seem to think that there was something printed in the paper about this being a weather balloon. I agree with the other person who reported this incident to you, the military does not evacuate schools due to weather balloons, and they would not seem as worried as they did to me. I would like to be able to talk to this person and that they would not seem as worried as they seemed to me. So that was two years later. Another two years went by, and then the next report appears on the internet about this. And that person wrote, Verifying the 1967 UFO landing at a Miami elementary school yard, I did not witness this myself but remember it as the strangest event ever in Miami. This was a highly populated area that the sighting centred on, mainly an elementary school, which was closed because of UFOs. It was in the papers, Miami Herald, Miami News. The entire school witnessed the event including teachers, administrators, estimated at 700 people. Why this concerns me is that I had an uncle that lived in Oper Locker Boulevard at that time. He could not get home for lunch from work via his normal route because the roads were blocked and detours were set up. Something similar happened at Westall, by the way, that I haven't mentioned but it has been reported. The streets around Westall were shut down, has been reported. My uncle saw something, but would not talk to me about it. And all that he may have talked to have since passed. The way I remember what happened is that the UFO actually landed. How in the world this could happen in a populated modern country and it is all but forgotten, I don't know. Just out of curiosity, I looked up the date to see if you had anything in your records and I just about fell out of my chair when I read the account of the witness asking if anyone else had seen it and wondered if he had really seen it. My God, how many more of these events have happened and time has just swept them too from under a rug? Two years later. Why things went in two-year instalments, I do not know. Certainly helps to cut down on paper, but anyway. This, This report is a second-hand account Um, of that taped interview happening in 1971. So this person is reporting that in 1971, as a sixth grade student at Crestview Elementary School, our teacher played a tape recording of an event, regarding an event which had happened a few years before. The teacher was Mrs, and the name's deleted. I don't know the name. And the interviewer is unknown. During the interview, Mrs. So-and-so, the teacher, described an unidentified aircraft landing in the broad, open field north of the school. She discussed strange features of the aircraft and the fear and panic that gripped the school during the initial moments after landing. The aircraft was still on the ground while soldiers patrolled the corridors. The school was a single-storey school with open-air corridors around a central courtyard. Several classes, including this teacher's, had, at the time, wall-to-wall windows that looked over the field to the north. After a considerably long time, several hours, the aircraft departed at an incredibly high rate of speed, almost instantaneously, and the soldiers also left. The taped interview lasted 30 to 45 minutes, and afterwards Mrs. So-and-so took questions from her class and reiterated several points that she made in the interview. During this time, several other teachers came into the classroom and listened, clearly uncomfortable. The teachers did, however, verify the class details of Mrs. So-and-so's account. Several years later, when I got involved in this investigation, I managed to track down a teacher who had joined the staff of Crestview Elementary School, around this time, the early 1970s. She wasn't there in 1967. And she remembers asking about the event in the staff room and being given the most cold, glassy looks by her colleagues. They did not want it talked about by this new teacher. When I got involved in the investigation, I had some of these old accounts, which I had managed to find on the internet, and through the wonders of Facebook, which has its positives as well as its drawbacks, of course, I was able to start making contact myself directly with some of the students who were there that day. Um, I joined a website Facebook page in Florida, and uh, made contact with kids who had been there that day. And like I had done earlier with Westall, I was making contact with kids who, for the most part, had not talked about this incident ever. And some of them gave me the most amazing accounts. One of them was a girl called Kim. She was there that day, she wrote to me, and she remembered everything about that day. She was in PE. She went to her teacher and asked, What are those objects in the sky? He was as puzzled as we were and had us go inside immediately. It's hard to explain what I saw, but they were objects. And some of them were invisible, with just darker outlines. And some were circular, shiny, silver-looking. They were shooting out one by one and disappearing. I too went home and got my mother, who did not believe me at first, until I told her to put the radio on and it was on the radio, and then she believed me. I begged her to take me back to the school, but we couldn't even get close to the school. There were so many people around. So I asked her to take me to the water towers down from the school, where we then met news people, police, and other witnesses. The objects were circling the water tower, and my mother was amazed. I am actually on the front page of the Miami Herald with my back to the photographer looking at the water tower. We can't see the water tower in this photograph. She said, I'm in a bathing suit. I don't know why I put my bathing suit on, but oh well. And the school tried to put it off as a weather balloon. But even as young as we were, we did not buy that story. I know what I saw. When the Air Force got there, as well as the Army, definitely we were in lockdown. I have only told this story to a handful of people in my life for thinking people would not believe me. That was a day I will remember forever. If I remember correctly, the man next to me in the photograph in the Herald was Air Force and there were plenty at the school. Our classroom had a lot of windows and we could see the Air Force, the Army, the police. I can even see that picture in the Herald now so vividly. Even though the paper was only black and white, I still remember the colour of my bathing suit. Barbara, another witness, she wrote to me, it was a big deal. There were three days of hundreds of us all watching those silver things in the sky from the schoolyard, looking north. One UFO was quite close to the school, a small one. We saw it go into a tree, and all the birds flew out of the tree. Needless to say, That fourth grade class went running and screaming away. I remember it very clearly. As does all my family, including my 85 year old father. It happened over my mother's birthday and we all joked that the aliens were coming back for her. Shane, she wrote, the saucer was hovering left of the tree when a student called Jonathan yelled. It then went into the tree, directly inside the branches and all. A flock of birds suddenly and violently flew out. Then the saucer came out the other side, to the right of the tree. It hovered for a few seconds and then sped off so fast as if it disappeared. That's when the class screamed and ran out of the classroom. Our classroom was a portable outbuilding in the schoolyard. It was directly across from the fields, as most of us called that area. A bank of windows in the room was due north, so the fields were clearly visible. The second day was an odd day. As the story got around the school, and lots of folks laughed at the improbability of it. I guess they thought we were just kids, hysterical. We were all in a heightened state, a heightened state of emotions, and interestingly, after a very short period of time passed, later in the day, more of the silver discs were seen over the fields. Kids were pointing to them during recess. Some were screaming and frightened, others curious, enjoying the free time outside. Little by little, all of the classes were out in the schoolyard watching. By the end of the school day, most kids were out watching the discs. My siblings and I ran home. It was my mother's birthday, we lived very close by. My father went back up to the school with us to watch. There were a couple of hundred people watching at the time. My father kept asking us, Describe what you see. Tell me when it moves. Right, left, etc. So I can compare it with what I'm seeing. We all saw the same thing. The press was there. Some men in uniform. Not sure if they were police or military. Everyone was talking about it. Everyone was watching. Some kids ventured out into the ponderosa. That's what we called the deeper part of the field. The frenzy lasted a few days, then quietened down to a low buzz. It's kind of weird to say you have seen UFOs and officials try to convince you that you haven't. No one ever forgot it, that's for sure. Another witness, Marianne. She wrote, I remember being out on the playground and I noticed two objects in the sky that were cigar shaped with green lights that were to the north of the school where I was standing out there with Mr Apfel. I know that our community had a curfew that night the Civil Aviation Patrol was involved. I don't believe it was the Air Force. I believe it was a special unit called the Civil Aviation or Air Patrol or something similar. There was talk about one landing in the open field near my home. It was interesting because Opa Locker Airport was to our southwest and North Perry Airport to our north and no one could tell us what was going on. My father was a reporter for the Miami Herald, but was not on the city desk. He was the real estate editor, or he had just changed jobs. I must say it was a very interesting day in my childhood. Our our house was a corner lot, and directly over the street was that wide open field to the north of the school. This is where so many of us saw the objects flying that day. The second last witness is Karen. I saw it hovering over the Crestview Playground at treetop level. It hovered for a bit, then moved up straight and flew away. It was my second grade class. We had a set of windows which gave us a wonderful view out onto the field north of the school. Our two future teachers, which were older kids, fifth grade students, who came into their classroom to look after them when a teacher wasn't available. They came into our class for about 15 minutes while our teacher went out. They were quite excited and told us that some kids in their class had seen the flying saucer. While they were talking in front of the class, I turned around and looked out onto the playground where I saw the flying saucer hovering at pine tree top level. It was cream colored and looked just like the flying saucers that are depicted. Basically saucer shaped and cream colored, not terribly big, It hovered, very still, tops of the trees. I just watched it and didn't say anything to my classmates. After a few moments, it lifted straight up and away. Windows were closed, I believe, but I did not hear any sound. I turned around and told the class I saw it, but by that time, it had moved up and away. And lastly, Jack. He wasn't a witness at the time, but he wrote to me, I was a year out of Crestview when the UFO incident occurred. I remember riding my bike out to the Ponderosa, but not seeing anything. Interestingly, in the early 90s, I was talking to a business associate who I, found, who I found out had lived in the area when the UFOs were sighted. He was a few years older than me, and related a story how he was riding his bike in the neighborhood at the time of the sighting rounded a corner and came face to face with one of the UFOs landed right in front of him. This person was a very well respected executive in the company I worked for and had also served as a control room engineer at NASA during the Apollo program. Shivers ran up and down my neck when he told me this story. So you can imagine me, as someone who has tried to research the Westall story, stumbling across this story and then making contact with these people who had been kids in 1967 and hearing so many parallels with the Westall story. What was I left to think but that surely there was some connection? And what about the date, a year to the day later? Gosh, strange things happen in this world, don't they? Let's play a short video clip now which will give you a visual account of some of those things, some of those witness accounts I've just shared with you.
7: With recess underway at a school in Miami, Florida, Jonathan, a grade four student, is lost in play.
1: Come on, let's go, let's
9: go. Bob Apfel was one of the grade four teachers at Crestview Elementary School. The bell had already gone and Bob was trying to get kids into class.
5: Everyone inside, come on.
7: Jonathan sees the same strange shape now off in the distance.
9: didn't look as though the object was about to crash, or land, or come down anywhere near the school. It was still some distance away. Let's go, come on, guys. You're late already, let's go. Thank you.
7: What the heck is that? Are
0: you seeing this? Young lady, inside, please. Jonathan, come on, inside, sir.
9: Jonathan. Mr
8: Apple what is that?
9: Bob App fell knew straight away this was something out of the ordinary there were various airfields around the school so you would be familiar with aircraft in the air what they look like <laughs> suddenly the object just disappeared They weren't sure whether it had just flown off so quickly that they couldn't keep track of it, or whether it had, in fact, actually vanished into thin air. There was an element of shock, an element of disbelief. They needed to go back to their normal daily routine while they processed what it was that they had just seen.
2: But what happened the next day, that's what really makes this case stand out.
9: As well, I'm happy to announce that $35 was raised for band instruments. So thanks to all who participated in our rally. It's back! This time, it's a different sighting. For one thing, the sighting is much closer. Something like 200, 250 yards away from the school property. For another, it's brought company. This time there was more than one. There was one larger object
2: and two smaller objects, and the two were acting like escorts. People saw something they couldn't describe or have never seen
9: before the larger object suddenly slows to a near stop. Just hovering in the air, not very far away from some trees, on the other side of the street from the school. What is it? What? It's gone! where it go?
4: That's so weird. The witness described the objects leaving the area by simply disappearing. It was there a minute ago.
9: It's not a very long experience, probably something like 30 seconds, perhaps a minute <laughs> amidst the chaos
7: what is going on mr appel finally arrives they're back
4: <laughs>
9: and kids go rushing out of the classroom
7: while mr Apfel races off to warn the principal the kids reach the edge of the schoolyard where the largest of the three objects
9: reappears, offering them a perfect view. Above the cigar shape, there was a sort of turreted structure, as if it was a a dome or a a small tower on top of the object. And what happened next was something utterly unexpected.
7: (laughs) Where'd it go?
9: It actually flew into one of the trees. Where'd it go? Oh, I, go I can't see anything. The tree didn't move. There was no damage to the tree that could be seen. I just saw
4: it. I not
9: And then the saucer came out of the tree. There was no damage to the flying saucer. The tree had somehow absorbed the flying saucer and then ejected it out. something that was really beyond their comprehension. There was this definite sense of wonder and excitement. The object was able to ascend to a certain height and then take off at incredible speed. Some of the witnesses have very clear memories of there being a strong military presence at the school over that afternoon. They interviewed three of the teachers who were direct witnesses to what had been seen. The Air Force said, well, if it hovers, it must be a helicopter, therefore it is a helicopter. But it makes no sense. The helicopter would make noise. The helicopter would be easily identifiable to the witnesses. They weren't that far away from it. The testimonies of the teacher witnesses still exist and they can be seen today, on the internet.
7: The following day, a group of local residents report yet another sighting around 9.45 a.m. Once again, involving three flying saucer-like objects near the schoolyard. UFO researchers later learn that Project Blue Book, the US military's official UFO investigation body, confirmed the Air Force's official explanation that the sightings were in fact, Coast Guard helicopters on manoeuvres. The explanation is flatly rejected by many of the original witnesses, both students and teachers. Over 40 years later, as adults, many have begun to discuss...
2: Thank you for watching that. Some of you may have seen that before. That was the Close Encounters series that was made by the Discovery Channel Canada. Several years ago, and has aired in some other countries as well. And they covered a, a, a quite a few historical UFO stories from over the years, including Crestview and including Westall. Some of you have seen this before, I imagine. Not too many? No. Okay, a couple of people have. So the Canadians didn't do very well with the Avro car, but they've done pretty well with this TV series, I reckon. And of course, their visual recreations based on witness accounts. It's not absolutely identical, perhaps, to what was actually seen. The kids are Canadians, and not from Florida, but uh, it was the retelling of that story. And uh, thank you for watching it. Is it a good time, Marie, for me to take a few questions about the two events, Westall and Crestview, before moving on to the Canberra bit, or...? If you believe it will have enough time to do that. Perhaps it may be 10 minutes of Q&A about Westall and Crestview. If there are questions, there may not be any. And, and I'm happy to cut down on the camera part, um, if need be. But I, I, oh, thank you. Thank you for saying that. Yes, if I live long enough. Yeah, thank you. No, I'm fine. I'm feeling good today. Thank you. Can I ask one about
1: that
4: missing person?
2: Yes, thank you. So a few people have asked me in the interval about the missing girl from Westall, Tanya. Yeah, so Tanya, and I've written about this on the Westall Incident Facebook page, but you don't have to read that, that's fine. Um, But it's there if you want to have a look at it. You don't have to become a member, by the way. So she's fine. She's great. She's back. I've been in contact with Tanya. And basically the story is that she did see the flying saucer and she feels as though she was the first to see it because she was out on the field doing PE at Westall High and she reckons she was the first to see it. I have one other student who thinks she was the first, but that's okay. And Tanya remembers running into the school, and she can well remember being excited and hysterical. And she thinks she she may well have been the kid that people remember going into Mr Andrew Greenwood's science class and interrupting it. She doesn't remember that herself, but she thinks it could very well have been her. She certainly remembers running through the school building and yelling out, flying saucer, flying saucer. But she also ran over to the Grange, where the flying saucer had been seen to go. And um, she, though, in her memory, and I can only go by her memory, of course, and I respect it, when she got to the Grange, the flying saucer was no longer there. She saw the big circle left behind in the grass, but it was gone. She has a very clear memory of running to the Grange. She has no memory at all of how she got back to the school. She didn't remember being taken to hospital in an ambulance. Now, she's seen the Westall 66 documentary and she's read other people's accounts. And she said to me recently that she's happy to accept that perhaps that did happen, although she doesn't remember it. And she says that because she was very anaemic in those years and would often faint and collapse. It happened at home. And she can well, remember, well think that on that day when there was so much going on and she was running around and she was so affected emotionally, excited, that perhaps she fainted that day and was taken to hospital. And came back later that day, or the next day, when it was discovered that she was okay. In terms of people going to her house, knocking on the door, and not finding her there, she doesn't know what that's about. But she did move school. And she thinks it may have happened during the school term break, between term one and term two. She says it had nothing to do with the UFO incident, Her mother wanted to upgrade to a better house. They had been renting with an Austrian couple who worked at the same factory as Tanya's mother in Clayton South. And they moved to another house in the neighbouring suburb and she then went to a different school. And so yes, she didn't return to Westall High School, but it was simply because of that. In terms of people knocking on her door and being met by people saying that Tanya wasn't there or never lived there, She says she can only put that down to some communication issue because the Austrian couple they boarded with didn't speak very good English. But she was interviewed by two men in the headmaster's office afterwards. And she was grilled. And these two men, originally she thought they may have been police officers, but in more recent times she has said and you may have seen this in one of the two documentaries that were made by Ross Coulthart for the 7 News Spotlight program, she remembers those two men now as being Americans or with American accents. And they were telling her that what she had seen was something very special and for the security of Australia, its national security, she had to keep it to herself, that there were communists, the fear of communism, There were people outside of Australia who might do Australia harm. She had to keep this to herself. And she remembers thinking at the time, even as a 12, 13-year-old girl, this was a cover story. They were trying to pull the wool over her eyes. And she thinks they didn't know any more about what she had seen than she knew. And they were trying to create a cover story. They were trying to make it important because she had seen something and that keeping a secret was an important thing to do. And she kept that secret. She never even told her mum. She didn't tell her brother. In fact, she didn't tell her partner, her second husband, third husband, one of her husbands. Um, She didn't tell her husband, her partner, her current partner or her two daughters literally until the last couple of years. And uh, she did keep that secret that she was asked to keep. Now. She says she doesn't care who hears what she says. She wants the story to be told, and she's emboldened because of what's happening overseas in America, with it becoming more openly talked about, with the processes that the American Congress is going through. So she feels emboldened now. She feels more supported now to tell her story. And that's, that's the basics of the Tanya story. And I was last with Tanya about six weeks ago in Canberra when a Japanese film crew came to Canberra and Melbourne to film The Westall Story for a Japanese TV program. Uh, Tanya's been filmed only twice now, once for that Ross Coulthart documentary, which was very brief of course, at least the edited part of it was very brief, and for this Japanese TV program where she told basically the same story.
4: That in that there was a science teacher who had a camera and took many photographs,
2: and that was confiscated by the military. Is that correct? <laughs> so, there are, there are quite a few witnesses who remember the story of one of the two science teachers at Westall High School taking photos. There were two science teachers, a man and a woman. Andrew Greenwood was the man, Barbara Robbins was the woman. Some people remember it as being Andrew. Some people remember it as being Barbara. Andrew says it wasn't him. He has no recollection of that. When Rosie Jones tracked down Rosie Jones, who did the Westall 66 documentary, when she tracked down Barbara, living in rural New South Wales at that time, Barbara was very unwell and um, physically unwell. She remembered being at Westall High School, she remembered there being this hullabaloo about a UFO story, but she remembered pretty much nothing beyond that. She had no memories of a camera or photos. Through her son, I tried to keep in communication with her son to see if her mother, after Rosie had met with her, remembered anything more. He tried and he said she's just not well enough and she doesn't remember, so we don't know. There are people, witnesses, including one who shared with me just in the last four or five weeks, a memory of standing next to Andrew Greenwood on the Oval, watching the UFOs and the photographs being taken by him. But he says it didn't happen, he doesn't remember it. And so that's where that story is at. Certainly no photographs have ever surfaced. But lots of witnesses have a memory of it, and yes, it was in the original documentary that Rosie made. um, Oh, thank you, thank you. Sorry, I'm hogging the microphone.
4: Shane, wasn't there witnesses to um, the camera being taken off that maybe science teacher? Yes,
2: there were. Yeah, Yeah, there were witnesses to that. So The story goes that the, photograph of the camera with the photos inside, the film inside, was snatched, yeah. taken away by these two officers in what appeared to be Air Force uniforms or some other uniform, um, and that the camera was never returned. There was one camera apparently at the school. It was a school camera. Cameras in those days were not as common as they are now, of course. There was an official school camera. That was the camera that was used, apparently, according to the witnesses. And yes, that's all I, I know.
4: That's uh, particularly pertinent because she was a science teacher. She was getting evidence.
2: Exactly, exactly. And the same for Mr Andrew Greenwood. That was his interest as well. He perhaps wanted to document it if, in fact, that's what happened. He says it didn't. I guess it's possible he's forgotten, I guess. Or maybe it was the other teacher and not Andrew.
1: One last one for me Sure. I speak loud. (laughs) The thing um, I'm going to ask if if you would know, which makes, um, if is because there's a lot of other people in Australia that have seen things, does it seem there's some coincidence things that it has to be something either in a daytime or the people have to be important? Or is it something that has to be 100% covered up before we can sort of like talk about it in the future? Like say somebody sees something and these people go on the news and they got something, some footage or something, happens behind the school, but it was, they're not important. You know what I mean? There might be a school teacher. It might be a scientist. It might not be some guy that because it seem to say someone, all these people that up being working in the Air Force, does NASA, this person done that. So all these people that sort of involved in the documentaries or um, went forward with the stories, all did something to that. They you know, became investigators or related. So. Is it maybe something that's common where it happens, where it has to be these people that will take take the thing forward and then they'll become this and then that, and then the group, you know what I mean? Like, so it's sort of like everyone's linked, but... Sure, um,
3: sure. You know what
1: I mean? So sure. you, you, you said the witnesses, but we're sorry it's too late. We talked about it because I passed away. and But the story keeps, you know, it, it doesn't end. It keeps going. Like,
2: yes, UFO stories have a habit of keeping on going. Yeah. And it's because, you know, they're in a way, they're intractable, they're unsolvable, Um, uh, at least so far. I mean, obviously, some get solved, and some, you know, are solved with prosaic explanations. And if ever a prosaic explanation is found for the Westall incident, for me, that's fine. Of course, in a sense, I'll be disappointed because I want it to be something more interesting than that, more exciting than that. What's wrong with that? But I'm open to it being not that. I'm open to it being something prosaic, or perhaps not prosaic, but being unusual, but not that unusual that it's extraterrestrial or ultra-terrestrial or ultra-chronological. I'm open to whatever the explanation is, as long as it's the right explanation. And I think that's what most witnesses want. When you talk to most of the Westall witnesses, some of them are convinced it was something extraterrestrial. Some people think it was something experimental. A lot just don't know. But most of them would say, I don't care what the explanation is as long as it's the right one. And, of course, as people, I mentioned this earlier, as investigators, as human beings, we look for patterns and we create patterns. And that's a very important thing to do as a researcher, as a scientist. But, of course, we're not working with a complete data set. We don't have all of the points of data that would allow us to create the full and correct pattern or explanation. We can only work with what we have. I know that's not a very good answer to your question, but something that came to mind. One more? One more question. Anyone
4: got a question? Uh, I have one more. Um, I I listened with particular interest to the segment in the film in which it was mentioned that people were mutual of this. People were on the street were visited by men, cautioning them to say nothing. Is that correct? Yes. Now, I have read in like, a lot of accounts about the men in black, right, who appear to be very odd. They don't even seem human. Um, this wasn't the case with these visitations, was
2: it? No, so the people who Oh gosh, the people who visited these neighbours of the Westall schools, the local residents, market gardeners, they were described simply as people in suits. People who were obviously from some government agency, whether they were police or air force or department of supply or whoever, but in suits with short cropped hair and that sort of look about them and putting the hard word on these people. Andrew Greenwood experienced the same thing, when in the week or two after the incident, because the Air Force had come to the school to talk to Andrew, and his boss, Frank Sambleby, the headmaster, had sent them packing, he wouldn't disturb Andrew's teaching and have these Air Force men interview him, they turned up on his doorstep at his home. One was an Air Force officer clearly because he was in an Air Force uniform of significant rank with circles around his sleeve. The other was in a suit. But he presumed he was from the government as well. And they came, down, came around, he thought, to listen to what he had to say and to take down more information about what he had seen. Andrew's mum was home at the time. His mum sat in the room next to the lounge room where Andrew sat down on the sofa. Andrew remembers them. He said to me, it was funny, the two Air Force officers, or the two guys, one from the Air Force, one from somewhere, sat down on the sofa next to each other, as if they were trying to support each other and uh, gird their loins for whatever they had to do. And what they did was they threatened Andrew. And they said, if you talk again about what you have seen, because at that point he'd already given an interview to the local newspaper and had been published, we will make sure you don't teach in Victoria again. We will let people know that as a new teacher, this was his first year at teaching, he was 20 years old, that you are not coping with your teaching, I can understand that, and was having alcohol on, your, on his Wheaties in the morning. And so they threatened his livelihood, they threatened his professional career. And he said to them, he said to me, I remember saying to them, if UFOs do not exist, as you have just said to me, then why do you care if I say I've seen one? Because you say that they don't exist. So I'm talking about something that doesn't exist as far as you're concerned. And he remembers them not receiving that little bit of logic very well. <laughs> um, he, Andrew's a very intelligent fellow, very intelligent, lovely gentleman. Anyway, that's the story he tells. And he says, has said to me, Shane, as clear as the memory of seeing this object was in the sky, out there on the oval with all the kids, having this experience of these two older men, because he was only 20, so maybe they were in their 40s, putting the hard word on him. And he had a lot of respect for authority. But what really chewed him up inside was, why were there people who didn't want him talking about something he had simply seen as a bystander? It wasn't his fault that he saw it. He simply reported what he had seen, and as a science teacher, he thought that was his job. Anyway, thank you everyone. Now, oh sorry, that's enough about Melbourne and Miami, let's get serious. Let's talk about Canberra. I know this is what you've really come for today. Now this bit could get a bit tricky because we might have to go slightly from PowerPoint presentation slides to a Word document from time to time, so we'll see how well it works out. I've got full faith in Paul and my faith is growing by the minute. So we're looking at this first slide, and okay, we can look at this one. So this is the Word document. So what I want to look at today, I created, and this is perfect, I created a Word document some time ago giving an outline of Canberra's UFO history. I mean, Canberra's famous for all sorts of things. It's our beautiful national capital city. It's where 350,000 people live, Australia's biggest inland city. It's my home. It's been my home for more than 20 years. But there's probably, as there would be in any city or town, a lost history of UFOs, stories, reports that aren't well-known. Some are. There are two big, rather well-known stories, known by UFO researchers from 1957, from memory, and 1965. But there's a host of other, maybe smaller events, that aren't so well-known. And they're equally fascinating. I did a very small chart here of tabulating using the Trove website that the National Library of Australia runs of the mentions of flying sources, UFOs, unidentified flying objects in the Canberra Times newspaper between 1926 and 1995. And you can see the numbers there associated with the different years. Now you can see there's a growth, an exponential growth over time as it moves through the years. What does it mean? I have no idea. But it gives us a bit of a picture of how, over time, the mentions of these terms, UFOs, flying saucers, etc move moves through the years, changes, grows, and uh, perhaps that's a reference to there being more sightings, or more sightings being reported, or the growth of the population in Canberra, or it being more able to be talked about and reported on in the media. I thought you might find it of interest, though. The next, Canberra's first flying saucers. The very first mention I could find of a flying saucer report in the Canberra Times was 1948, a local flying saucer story. There were many, from 1947 onwards and even earlier, of events that had happened overseas, particularly Roswell. The great thing about the Canberra Times and Trove is that the Canberra Times is there all the way up to 1995. Most other Australian capital city newspapers aren't on Trove, aren't available digitally, publicly, um, um, for that long. They stopped much earlier on. So 1948, the first mention of a flying saucer, and, excuse me for a moment, I don't, know, I don't know how well you can read what's on the screen. I guess it's a bit of a difficulty for some people. But the first report reads, several Canberra residents claimed last night that they had seen flying saucers in the southeastern skies approximately at 7.45pm. Calls were received at the office of the Canberra Times from persons in Ainslie and Reid, who said they had seen two star-like objects in the shape of saucers, moving in a westerly direction at an incredible speed. The informants refused to give their names. That's interesting, isn't it? Even as early as that. The air radio station at Fairbairn airdrome that's the Air Force Base in Canberra, next to the Canberra Airport, gave a possible explanation. They said that planes were engaged in night manoeuvres and two planes took off almost together at approximately 7.45pm and flew in a westerly direction. A report from the Mount Stromlo Observatory said that nothing unusual had been observed. So, even as early as 1948, we're getting an explanation. Was it the right explanation? Probably was, but who knows? And we're getting a mention of the Mount Stromlo Observatory, which is a place in Canberra, outside of Canberra, on top of Mount Stromlo. Originally it was a solar observatory, now it's become a stellar observatory, a planetary observatory, and they were often involved in reports of UFO sightings in Canberra. The next one along is... um, Oh, I'm just trying to see it here on the page. It's right at the bottom. Oh, okay, yes, the TAA Pilot C Venus, 1950. TAA Pilot Gordon Savage and First Officer F.E. Hastalow sighted a very powerful bright white light to the east of the aircraft, their aircraft. At 15 second intervals it changed to red. Savage climbed the plane to 1600 meters for a better look. Mascot Tower had no other aircraft in the area but also saw the light. Savage later believed that they had been observing the planet Venus, but Hastelow disagreed." And In the Canberra Times article, that's there as well, it goes into more detail about what was seen. But basically there was a disagreement between the two pilots. One was adamant that it was Venus. The other one said, in no way could it have been Venus. It was something else. He said, we were flying at 3,000 feet. We continued to watch it for a while. It seemed to be proceeding on the same course as we were, but at a considerably faster speed. Captain Savage climbed to 5,000 feet to get a better look at the phenomenon, which was drawing away from us at a high speed, and eventually disappeared into a veil of atmosphere, very much as a headlight disappears in a fog. Next, 4th of July, 1954. I just have that there because you may not know about this, some of you will, there is a wonderful relatively new database that's available to the public called the UPDB, the Unexplained Phenomena Database, and on it you can search by city and state and country and date for all sorts of UFO incidents that have been reported to different organisations over the years, collated into this database. And the very first one I could find for Canberra was that one from 1954, which was simply Nocturnal lights being reported to the NICAP organisation in the United States. The next page is about one of the two famous incidents that happened in 1957. And I'm not sure, it, maybe if you go back a slide, uh, Canberra's astronomers see a UFO. 8th of November 1957, the Mount Stromlo Solar Observatory. And I won't go into too much detail, in the document, on the screen, I've gone into a lot of detail about Keith Basterfield's write-up about this. Keith Basterfield, many of you will know, he's done a wonderful look at this incident, which involved an object being seen by several astronomers from the Mount Stromlo Observatory. And if we can go to the slide back in PowerPoint, which has that Slides 36 to 38. Let's see if we can do this. If it's too much trouble, we won't won't stay with it. That's the Futuro House in Canberra, well worth a visit at the University of Canberra. It's our own landed flying saucer. You can hire it out for meetings, by the way, or some other activities. Next slide is the Mount Stromlo Solar Observatory. And the next slide actually shows, it's a photograph of Professor Bart Bock, the director of the observatory in those years up until 1966. And the next photograph shows the staff at the observatory in 1957 and includes many of the astronomers who were witnesses to these UFO incidents that happened at Mount Stromlo. Interesting, back row, fourth from the left, is a Jesuit priest who was on staff at Mount Stromlo Observatory as an astronomer. He spent a few years in Australia. The Jesuits, of course, have a very long tradition of being scientists, obviously. Many of the first universities in Europe were started by the Jesuits, and a strong interest in astronomy. And the next slide. Oh, this one is the one photograph I could find of a UFO that apparently was seen in the skies over Canberra. And who knows what it was? I've no idea, but it often pops up. If you do a Google search or look into Canberra UFOs, this one often comes up. Don't worry about it too much. Now we'll go to the next slide. Lovely. Some of you will know this building in Canberra. It's the Academy of Science. And because we don't have very much time left, I'm going to skip ahead. I'm going to invite you to have a look at that 1957 Mount Stromlo sighting, either on Keast Basterfield's website or on the internet more generally. But basically it was a light that was seen travelling across the sky at high speed when the astronomers were observing the night sky, and all of the astronomers came to the conclusion that they couldn't identify what it was. And, of course, because they were astronomers and they couldn't identify what it was, it was picked up in the media at the time, in newspapers around the world, and became quite a well-known story in those years, 1957. Keith Besterfield thinks it was probably something like a Chinese lantern. I'm not sure that that's right, but he might be right. It may have been something like that. Now, I want to jump ahead, if I can, and if we go back to the word document, Paul, the next story I have there is 1957 Oh sorry not no, so next slide, sorry. 1963. I oh, just keep going through a few slides, please, if you don't mind. Sure. But go back. Sorry about this, everybody. 1963, Canberra Racecourse UFO a disc-shaped object, a mystery, reported in the Canberra Times. Many racegoers at Canberra Racecourse on Saturday were mystified to see a large disc-shaped object rise from behind Mount Ainslie. The object, which appeared in a direct line with the grandstand and the barrier, was first seen at 2.35 p.m. It rose at an angle of 45 degrees above the same height as Mount Ainslie. The object, which was visible for 30 seconds, dipped and turned several times, before returning behind Mount Ainslie. It appeared again, rising from the same angle, staying visible for about the same length of time, before disappearing slowly out of sight. A racecourse patron, who had seen it through his binoculars, said the object appeared to be white and disc-shaped. Next, back to Mount Stromlo. Again, 1963, in May, Canberra astronomers seeing things again some of the same astronomers from 1957 had another UFO sighting. And this was a very interesting one because, again, the astronomers came to the conclusion that it was nothing that they could identify. It was not a star, it was not a planet, it was not a comet, it was not a meteor. And when they checked later with the Department of Civil Aviation Authorities officials at Fairbairn Airport, They were told no aircraft was in the vicinity at the time. The object, which was brightly illuminated and of an orange-red colour, passed from west to east at a very high altitude. Interestingly, the Canberra Times, the following day, reported that the astronomers at Mount Stromla had been contacted by the Royal Australian Air Force and had been told that there was an aeroplane up at the time and it was a vampire jet and that was the explanation for what they saw. Some of the astronomers, though, weren't absolutely satisfied with that explanation, but that was the explanation that was given. If we go ahead a couple of slides. And a couple more. So this one, I'm just going to spend just a second or two with this. In 1965, 15th of July, it was Canberra Airport's turn to see something strange in the sky. And basically, an object was seen hovering over a mountain called Mount Greenwood near Canberra Airport, which forms part of the boundary between the ACT and New South Wales. And the air traffic controllers at Canberra Airport, the meteorologists, were not able to identify what it was. There was a mystery. Uh, the RWF launched an investigation, and two separate conclusions were reported in the newspapers at the time. One was that the Air Force had identified it as Venus. The other newspaper report stated that there hadn't been a satisfactory explanation found by the Air Force, and it was still left as being unexplained open-ended. Venus seemed to be the conclusion that most people settled on. Rosie Jones and I, when we were working on the Westall 66 documentary, tracked down one of the air traffic controllers from the Canberra Tower that day in 1965, and he's mentioned in the newspaper articles. And he said to us, it was not Venus. What I saw was not Venus that was a cover story. He didn't know what it was, but it wasn't Venus. So think about that the next time you're flying in or out of Canberra Airport, please. I always do. And I'm always on the lookout. If we go ahead in time, a few more slides. Next one. Next one. Thank you. Canberra Airport, air traffic controllers sight another UFO. So a couple of days later, again, in July 1965, they're at it again. The air traffic controllers and the meteorologists at the airport again sight something strange in the sky. And again, conflicting reports are given as to what it was. If we go ahead and again with the slides, oh, now just go back one. Okay. So I showed you before a photograph of the Australian Academy of Science. Now that's important because, apart from being a wonderful building in Canberra, it was one of the venues that was used by the fledgling Canberra UFO Research Society. So Canberra had a UFO Research Society for quite a few years and it was founded in 1967. And not long after it was founded, they became the hosts of the third annual federal UFO conference that was run by an organisation called Capio, the Commonwealth Aerial Investigation Phenomena Organisation. And the venue that was used was the Australian Academy of Science, as well as the what's now the National Film and Sound Archive Building in Canberra. At that time it was the Australian Institute of Anatomy. And I found in my searching through the Canberra Times that the president of that society at the time was a gentleman by the name of Harry Zwankhuizen, And the secretary was a lady by the name of Vicky Klein. And Bill Chalker has written about Vicky in some of his writings. She was well known to Bill. What I found, and you'll find this perhaps amusing like I did, in 1962, Just a couple of years before Harry became the president of the Canberra UFO Research Society, he was involved in a criminal report where two Air Force men at the hostel where Harry was living stole a hubcap off his car and it went to court as a court case. And I'm wondering if that was the genesis for Harry's interest in UFOs and the somewhat difficult relationship he had with the Air Force in those early years. It's just an amusing aside. You don't have to read anything into it more than that. I also came across in the Canberra Times, if we move across the next few pages, several sightings involving schools. And if we keep going, because we're running out of time, That's okay. You can just keep going, because I want to end, because we don't have very much time, with this very last sighting. 2012, the 4th of April. I want you to know that Canberra also had a tic-tac UFO. And we have a video to show you of that, a video taken from the aeroplane of this tic-tac-shaped UFO. Tic-tacs are all in the news at the moment, of course. What this tic-tac UFO actually was, of course, no one really knows. And when it comes to UFO videos on the internet, especially on YouTube, who knows? But here it is. That was it, we'll see it again. Thank you, Paul. I just wanted everyone to know that Canberra can also be fashionable. We can keep up with the times and we can also have our own tic-tac UFO. But, that's enough for Canberra. I'm sorry that we ran out of time, but I just wanted to say to you, finish with you, my last slide, if you can bring it up. It's an aerial photograph of a place called Brooklyn in Victoria. What if Westall wasn't the first? An anniversary story. This was posted on the 6th of April this year on the Westall Facebook page by me. A flying saucer at a school, a group of kids and a teacher outside on the sports oval. A landing, a student injured and taken away in an ambulance, a response by the military, a cordon set up and a circular depression left behind on the ground at a school in suburban Melbourne in the 1960s, but not Westall. Was this a precursor to the Westall incident, an event earlier that might shed light on what it was that actually happened at Westall, or some strange improbable but unrelated coincidence, perhaps misidentified or misremembered? For several years now, after seeing a rather random-looking post on my now defunct Westall Flying Saucer Incident Yahoo Group site, long since superseded by the Facebook page, I have been attempting to look into a report of an apparently crash-landed UFO at a Melbourne school in around 1964 or 1965. The post was made by a former student of the school whose older sister and brother had been witnesses, along with at least one of the grade six classes that year, and at least one teacher. For a long time, I doubted the story, as you do. And with a story like this, which seems to contain the strangest of elements, and seemingly without any evidence to support it, how could anyone be but anything but suspicious? Even a UFO researcher, even me. Yes, even after all these years of researching Westall and other UFO incidents, one still doubts. I mean, how many flying saucer incidents at Melbourne schools in the 1960s is one realistically supposed to accommodate? The school, by the way, is this one here. There's the school building, there's the school playground. Next to the school was a migrant hostel, with mainly British migrants at that time. But then I stumbled on a Facebook group page for this former school. The school no longer exists and has been replaced with a fire station. And I found other former students who remembered what my original correspondent had reported. Not in exactly the same way, perhaps, and not in as much detail, but with enough common elements to make me rethink my earlier scepticism. Clearly, Dennis, the man who first contacted me, wasn't making up a story from scratch. And Dennis was able to provide me with other details about the school, the local area, and other newsworthy things that had happened around the same time that I was able to independently corroborate. And other students remembered him and his siblings from their time at the school. So the bare bones of the story are supplied to me by Dennis, and supported in part variously by six other students that I have been in contact with are this. A UFO landed or crashed on the sports oval of the school at the very rear of its property, near a fence that separated the school from the migrant hostel. It landed with such a force that it made a circular depression in the ground about a metre deep, pushing the earth up in a circle around it. A class of kids and their teacher were outside at the time, and it created quite a panic While the teacher or teachers attempted to corral the kids away from the site, some of the students ventured closer to it. One boy picked up a rock and threw it at the craft. He was then struck in the head by a beam of light, resulting in a visible injury to his head. I'm glad the people in this environment can laugh as well. He was later taken to hospital by ambulance, not the ambulance again, and did not return to the school. Word got around the school very quickly that something had happened on the oval, and at least some other students came out and saw something was going on. Some students remember rushing into their classroom, and other students rushing in saying that a spaceship had landed on the oval. Others remember being ordered to stay inside. The military quickly arrived on the scene and cordoned off the area. The UFO was placed on the back of a truck, under a tarpaulin, and transported away. Anyone else thinking of Kecksburg? Or Crestview? Or what's the other one? Oh yes, Westall, Westall, that's right. The circular hole or depression, and some say there were scorch marks too, remained visible for a long time afterwards, for years, according to Dennis, all the way up until the school was closed and the property sold off. Not surprisingly, some remember that the incident remained a hot topic of conversation amongst the students for many months. Well, that's the story at least so far. And if you have been keeping score at home, you've probably noticed one or two similarities with the West Door story. Is any of this story true? Was it really a UFO or spaceship? Or was it something else that came down? Space junk, part of an aircraft, experimental balloon array, dare I suggest it? Even from one student who contacted me, who thought it might have been some sort of hoax, she was in no doubt that something had indeed occurred, that it had happened on the oval and some sort of investigation involving authorities had taken place. Without a more precise date, or even a month, it has proved impossible so far to find any reference to it in the press, if indeed there was any. Some students who say they they were there in 64 or 65 say they have no memory of such an incident, and I have not been able to make contact with any surviving staff who might have been there in those years. Whatever it was that descended onto the oval at this school on the other side of Melbourne from Westall, this one, at least it seems, according to Dennis, did not get away. It was collected and carted off. However, like at Westall, we are left wondering what on earth could have caused such a series of events, if they are being remembered correctly. And how could it be that any trace of such an incident has already been lost to the sands of time. Well, almost lost. The Westall story reminds us that it only takes one person to remember, or one person to go looking for a story that was supposed to stay buried. Time will tell if what happened at Dennis's school in Melbourne's western suburbs in the mid-1960s was such a story. For Dennis, at least, he is sure there must be some connection between what happened at his school and at Westall and he might be right, but what was that connection, if any, turns out to be? Can I please plead with you, take up your own Westall story, your own UFO incident, if you have time, if you have the energy, if you have the inclination, and make a research into that story yourself as well. It's a frustrating task, but it has its rewards as well, and for me personally, this being here with you is one of those rewards. Thank you very much.